0: Hello and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link,
1: and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day.
2: Good evening friends, I'm Trevor and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you uh we're starting this meeting a little bit early everybody's waiting around just waiting for the meeting to start and there's sufficient of us to keep it going for the extra time anyhow so why not and uh it's good to see you all here this evening uh i'll just read out the preamble of alcoholics anonymous alcoholics anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. And. Uh, as I said before, I'm Trevor and I'm al- a- an alcoholic. And the only requirement for me to be chairman of this particular meeting is the fact that I am an alcoholic. And uh, the, uh, my alcoholism uh, stemmed over a period of 16 years. And right from the day that I took my first drink through till some time after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I ceased to grow in all of the areas that would have made it possible for me to live comfortably, With my family, with my wife and four children, uh, and with my fellow man. And, uh, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous after 16 years of drinking, I was in a state of, uh, total despair. I'd looked around everywhere and was unable to find the answer. And, uh, it's amazing how we do come to come to this fellowship. Because it was on Easter, uh, not Easter, on, uh, Australia Day in 1977 that I was standing in the pub. And I totally resigned myself to the fact that I was going to be a daily drunk for the rest of my life, because that was my lot. I couldn't go a day without a drink, and if I had one, I couldn't stop. And I was swept out with the bumpers every night, and I had a blackout nearly every day that I drank. And uh, I was standing in the bar of this uh, hotel, the Royal at Randwick, on this particular Monday night, and a fellow came in that was a good drinking mate of mine, and uh, I hadn't seen him for a short time. And I simply said to him, I said, uh, where in the heck have you been? and he said uh, i've been on the grog and i said how the heck you have managed to do that and uh because he'd been away for about three months and he said i've been to aa well i arranged with with that fellow then to take me to a meeting the following night and i haven't had a drink to this night and that's five years and three months ago and the only thing that i've done right in all that time is the fact that i keep coming back to the meetings and uh really and truly, that is the reason why I'm here today. In that first five months, uh, it was a, a settling period. I believe most of us go through some sort of settling period, whereby we actually get back to a state of some sort of, uh I wouldn't say sanity, but of some sort of recognition, whereby we're in a position to be able to see ourselves as we truly are. And that was my situation. And five and a half months after i come to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I was reduced to nothing. I thought that AA was the big be-all and end-all, and it was the cure-all for all my ills. Uh, communication was my greatest problem when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't talk with my wife, with my children, couldn't carry on a conversation at all. And uh, two and a half months after I'd come to Alcoholics Anonymous, when everything was supposed to be coming right and rosy and all this sort of thing, they got up and left. They couldn't stand me any longer. And I couldn't blame them. And... Uh, Probably a good thing because when uh, when the wife left me, she took the cat and the do- cat and the kids and the cutlery and all that sort of thing and left me with a bed and the dog and a knife, fork, and plate. And uh, I went into a depression, and this depression was the last about two weeks, and uh, it was getting blacker and blacker. And on this particular day in July, uh, the only positive thought that I had in my mind was the fact that I was going to commit suicide. And, uh, and I was laying there with the bed on the bed the old dog up beside me for a bit of company and pretty pretty grim sort of a scene and the thought occurred to me to ask for help and i simply said said god help me and within 10 minutes the telephone rang and somebody rang me on the telephone that day that had never ever rung me before in their life but it was able to give me the assistance that enabled me to be here today that was the turning point they read read out in chapter five we stood at the turning point that was my turning point. My attitudes, my life, everything revolved around that particular point of time. Up until that moment, even in the five and a half months that I'd been in Alcoholics Anonymous, I measured everything in terms of, uh, you know, how far was it? It was three schooners and the midi. Uh, you know, how much was it? It was two schooners and something else other. You know, measurement, everything, my thinking was all orientated around grog. Uh, during my drinking, you know, I never drank with people who didn't drink. I never went anywhere with people who didn't drink. And, uh, you know, if I went to a dry party, that was for about five minutes, and then I was off. You know, I had other places to go to. And uh, and so my thinking was orientated that way. From that time of my turning point, I felt a fantastic uh, release from this bondage, uh, bondage of self that I had. And, uh, From that moment onwards, I had an open mind. I was able to uh, change my attitudes to such an extent that it enabled me to see the things I couldn't before. When I came to AA, uh, the fellow who brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous showed me where there was two meetings. I was of the opinion, for some reason or other, that I had to be shown where the rest were so that I could go to them. And nobody ever did that, so I went to two meetings a week. And that's how unwell I was. I just didn't have the ability to be able to pick up the literature and find out there's about two or 300 meetings in Sydney that I could openly go to, you see. But uh, after this point of time, I certainly knew where they were. I found out where they were that day, and uh, I went on a daily basis then for some considerable time. And uh, as time went on, I found it necessary for me uh, to go through the various plateaus that I was going through to change my group to get involved in big book study groups to get involved in where the action was uh, you know the steps uh, traditions the everything that was available the beginners groups the whole lot and uh, as time's gone on I think I've attained a little bit of sobriety uh, I'm not so concerned with all those things today as I am with my primary purpose my primary purpose as I understand it today is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety and to that I'll defend to the, I'll do anything to the bitter end. And, uh, you know, up until a few weeks ago, I used to say to everybody who'd come my way, uh, ring me at any time. But underneath, I would say, for God's sake, don't ring at three o'clock in the morning. But something happened in my life where that was totally removed. Uh, a beautiful incident, and I'll relate this and then I'll allow other speakers to speak, otherwise I'll be here all night. Uh, we come in contact with some funny things in our life and this one I still haven't got over and I probably uh will retain some part of it for the rest of my life. My place is such now that the wife and family are back, I've got four kids and they've all got four mates and it's nothing to go home and there's 16 people there for dinner or <laughs> all this sort of copy, you know, you don't know who they are or what they are and all this sort of thing, but that's the way it is and we love it and we hope that they love us and uh one of the little fellows that was coming around our way was uh, Blake by the name of Malcolm and he even said to me one day, he said, uh, you know, I think I'll come around to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with you. I said, you beauty, you know. And he says, I'll just go home and get dressed and come. And uh, he got home, and he phoned up, and he says, I think I'll leave it until another day. And I said, well, you know, the meetings are there. I go every day virtually, uh, any time, come along. Malcolm got into trouble with drink. He was picked up by the police, uh, kicking over garbage cans down the main street. Uh, you know, drink is no longer, being drunk, uh, without being offensive is no longer an offence for being picked up he was he went to the police station and so and something happened uh whereby he found it you know the story comes back he hung himself at five o'clock in the morning after having been picked up if he hadn't had that first drink he wouldn't have been kicking over the garbage cans that made me feel the feeling of bereavement and uh you know the sense of loss and the sense came through to me that i hadn't done enough I just hadn't done enough. And I wore that very heavily. And I was at a group meeting, and one of the meetings we run is a discussion meeting. And one of the people uh, had a loss on the weekend. Their brother had died. And through various circumstances, she opened up with us in the discussion meeting and uh, told us how there was resentments involved and all this sort of thing. But that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was what happened. There were people at that meeting who explained to us very lovingly, very gently, what uh, bereavement, death, and all these sorts of things were about, and the uh, one gentleman turned around, one of the members turned around and said, "You know, bereavement is usually associated in nearly every case with a sense of guilt, and it could be the guilt for not having done something, or the guilt for for having for not having done something, but also for having done something. You know, it's pretty hard to escape it if you're close enough to the person. And once that understanding came through." something happened to me, I now know that it doesn't matter if it's half past three in the morning, I'm on my way to that call. And uh, I only hope I'm given the opportunity now. It's giving me that extra little bit of willingness that will enable me to carry out my primary purpose. That is enough for me. Uh, David, would you like to start off, please?
3: Good evening, friends. My name is Dave, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. It's nice to be reminded that I have so many sisters and brothers in this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's nice to be reminded that I can still laugh. And it's even nicer to be reminded that I can still shed tears as I did last night in hearing the Vedna passing away. Now, I don't know just what I'm going to say to you. But I know that the power of God, as I understand him, will put the words in my mouth. I had the privilege in 1957 to serve as an usher at the public meeting in Sydney Town Hall. And I was fortunate enough to be related to a bloke that I heard say these words, and they apply very much tonight as they did then. He said, if you take nothing else from this meeting tonight, take hope that there is a way of arresting the disease of alcoholism one day at a time. In October last year, I attended a managers meeting in the Westfield Centre at at, uh, Parramatta. And there are about 80 managers from all over in different fields. And the guest speaker on that night was Walter Dickman. And Walter Dickman was the first man to bring the Dale Carnegie courses here to Australia. And then he branched out and he started a course of his own. And he came out, and I'd just like to repeat just what he, he did and said. He came out and introduced himself. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, he said, I want you to carry out an exercise with me. Will you do this? And they all said, yes. He said, it's quite simple, nothing to be alarmed about. He said, I want you to do an exercise, quite simply. He said, I am going to clap my hands and count to four. And when I count to four, I want you to clap your hands. Will you do that for me? And they all said, Yes, sure. And he turned his back. And he came forward in this manner One, two, three. And he clapped his hands, and everyone clapped with him. And he said, Is there anyone here that didn't clap their hands? And two mugs put their hand up one black over there, and me over here, you know. And he said, The fella over there, he said, Why didn't you clap? And he was a young bloke, and he said, I was too slow. And he said, what about you? And I said, I'm an old-age pensioner, I'm slow, but I said, I'm still waiting for you to say four. And these are the most important things that I think I need to do, and need to be aware today that they are here for me. Hope which I've proved over a number of years, will work, if I want it to work, and to be able to listen. To be able to listen. And it took me a long time to listen, because I was a, I was around AA in Sydney for nine years, and I was selling life assurance, and a ticklish problem came up in Grafton, and they said, Dave, we want you to go up there, You'll only be there for three months. All we need to know is you're going to take your family with, him, with you or you're going on your own. And I said, I can't tell you. I'll have to talk it over with my wife. And we just had the second young fella. And she said, no. She said, I'd prefer to stick it out here where I have everything that I need So to go up there and peddle my papers in rented quarters. So off Dave went to Grafton. And it was a ticklish situation that involved him from Chatsworth Island to Fort Macquarie. You know, nothing to do, anything like 1,800 mile a week. And I was unfortunate, I could not get to a meeting in the towns on the night that they met. I was making contact with people like Joe and, and uh, our committee chairman, Tom Kaye, who was at Port Macquarie at the time. And after three or four weeks of this, I started getting edgy. I started to feel within myself that I was ill at ease. And I realised that I need a, needed a meeting. And I referred to the reviver. I picked up the reviver and I had a look in the back, and in the back it's got Reader, a contact And I was so far gone that Rita, being a Sheila, she wouldn't be able to help me. And I looked up Lismore. And Lismore's 80 mile one way and 80 mile the other. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting a cold. And I look at Lismore and Lismore's got Viv and Babe. Won't ring Babe. Babe, another Sheila. she wouldn't be able to help. I ring Viv. And I said, the meeting on up there tonight? And he says yes. And I said, are you having any rain? He said, no, nothing you can speak of. So I headed from Grafton out through Whipparee. And at Whipparee, water's coming in the valiant car that I was driving. You know, did isn't any rain. I get there and his little Morris miner, I learned was, learned, was his later, was floating down the gutter, you know. <clears throat> and after the meeting was over, I was telling Viv just how I was feeling and what I was thinking. And he said, if you can spare ten minutes. I said, I can spare ten minutes for sure. He said, I'll take you around. He you to babe. now we go, and we go to this back door, and he knocks, and he says, is it all right to come in? A big gruff he says, yeah, come on in. We walk in, Is babe, six foot five, and that broad. And ever since that night, I commenced to listen with an open mind. Now, at most meetings we attend in AA, we are asked to do simple things. And the moment I neglect to do these, I'm in trouble. The simple things we are asked to do is come to a a meeting, sit down, be prepared to listen, and look for the similarities, not the differences. Don't reject anything you hear. Because you may come to believe it to be true. You may come to believe it to be (coughs) true. And I attended my first meeting in August 1946. And this was what I was asked to do. Just that. And I started to. I met Fred and his wife. There were only four people there. And Manley's one of the oldest. It is the oldest. Meeting in the Sydney metropolitan area. And Fred was a chemist. In Manly. And I started to. Relax. Sit down. And as you know, the 16th word in the third step is God. And I have a brother doing the ministry. And he'd say, Dave, God will help you if you ask him. And I'd haul off and job him. Now, if you're here tonight looking for differences, don't go past the first step. Don't go past the first section of the first step. Because there's a difference. And I tried to live with it for nine years. There's a difference between admitting to Dave that he's an alcoholic, that he has a problem, and completely accepting it. When I had my first drink, I wonder how many of us can remember our first drink. I wonder how many can remember the, the feeling What's it doing for me? I can. I was a mummy's boy stuck out in Barrett Creek in homesickness, and I'm going to bed with a blanket on me you know, like this. And the bloke said, the bottle's are on over there tonight. night. they come across, he said, and have a drink. He said, you won't have to cry yourself to sleep. I went across. I had half a bottle. I didn't even make the tent. I slept on the mica. And the progression of this disease it's deadly too. You know, I bought a farm. And I know I bought the farm because it shed the putt fence. I paid for a room 12 months in advance because I knew that some nights I wasn't going to be able to make it. And it was only a quarter of a mile up the road. And I know what it is to be embarrassed by the disease of alcoholism because the main road to Griffith used to go past a 240 acre paddock and I put a crop in. But I'd spent the day at the pub and took three bottles of white heather whiskey onto the tractor with me. And I did the whole of the paddock, put everything away. Eight days later I go down and say, Wonder why I only got two rows to strike. And I go back up, and the seed wheat's there, the soup is there. And, you know, in a small country town, if you don't know what embarrassment's like, not one car at a time would pull up on that main road, but 20 of them. And they'd all lean there and talk to one another. and Look at Dave's crop. Did you see Dave's crop? These are the feelings. And I was forced, you know, I used to say if I had plenty of money, I wouldn't drink in this fashion. And I was earning plenty of money out the farm, and the accountant used to say, gee whiz, mate, you're earning big dough the equivalent of $30,000 a year in 1950. I used to say, if I was married, I wouldn't drink in this fashion. I'd pull my horns in, I wouldn't have to go down the road. I got married, you know, a small country town and two lovely looking school teachers arrive. And the farmers come out of the woodwork. But David made up his mind he was going to marry that girl six months before he even met her. That's the type of alcoholic I was. I was racing well ahead, I can tell you. And I used to say if I was married I wouldn't drink in this place. And I married this girl and we came back to Sydney and I didn't drink for six months. And oh hell didn't I want to. Oh, gee. And after the six months I thought, well, you know, a couple won't hurt me. And I started. And in a short space of time, mentally blacked out one night, I attempted to cut my wife straight with a carving knife. Fortunately for me, a fella came into the little at which was a petitioned off two-room veranda, back veranda on a house in Stan- Haverfield. <clears throat> he prevented it from happening. And when I got to work, Leary eyed and shaken the next morning, he said, Do you know what you got up to last night? I said, No, not really. No. I said, The last thing I can remember, I said, was when we went to that wake for the fella at the officer's mess and that officer came up the stairs and the king hit him. He said, Yeah, he said, I wondered why you did that. He said, Oh, he was an officer with me in the in the army. I couldn't stand him. That was the last I remembered. He said, Well I'll take you a little bit further than that. He said, If I hadn't have been come in with you, he said, you wouldn't be here, you'd be in jail. You'd be up for murder. He said, You attempted to cut your wife's throat. And I laughed at him. And he said, well, if you don't believe me, ask your wife. And my wife said when I asked her, she said, it's not a very nice thing to tell you, but it's true. And she asked me what I was going to do about it. And I said, I'll go and have a yarn with Oz. And Oz has never ever told me that I was an alcoholic. He suggested to my mother that I may have a problem. If she could get me along to a meeting, I may be able to help. That was how I came to get to the August meeting in 1946, to get my mum off my back. I went into Oz's place, he was living at Burwood, pardon me, and he said, sit down mate, have a cup of tea. He said, and we'll go to a meeting where you'll meet men and women who have the same problem as you and I. He said, I've been waiting a while for you to come. My immediate reaction and answer, I've been to one. He said, well, come to another one. He said, and you'll hear people talk about God. He said, and you'll hear people talk about faith. He said, all I'm going to say to you, Dave, is this. He said, there's good and bad in you. He said, and the good far outweighs the bad. And he says, faith, in its simplest form to me, is believing. I went to that meeting. And I know I got something out of it. And that something was keep coming to meetings. Because they told me if I stuck around, that if I didn't get AA and I stuck around AA would get me. And if you don't believe it, I'm standing here sober tonight. Because that's exactly what happened. I went to a meeting, drunk every night for three weeks. And Ted M, who was secretary of Ashfield at the time and later secretary of our central service office in Sydney, was at the meeting I attended on the January weekend of 1955. And he said, "Dave, you're having a battle yourself, aren't you?" I said, "Yes, Ted, I am." He said, have you read this pamphlet? And he held it up. Who, me? I said, yes, I have. He said, I suggest you read it again. And I only know one verse off Pat and that's all I need to know. When I get what I want and I struggle with self and the world makes me king for a day, go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. That night the miracle happened for Dave because I left that meeting that night and have not needed to drink since. Maybe I wanted to on occasions but I have not needed to drink. And I have done the simple things that have been asked of me. You know if we look at that first step it's in two parts. But it's in two parts for a reason because we're changing the context. We're changing the context of its meaning. The unmanageability of my life was the reason for my first drink. And the first step for me is a commitment. It's a conscious commitment of conviction. Surrender acceptance and convinced. The third step is one of daily commitment to a God that I have limited understanding of. But a God that I love, a God that I trust, and a God that I know that knows me. And I cannot go through the confession stage of the program and arrive at the 11th step and improve or try to improve my conscious contact with the God as I understand Him unless I've committed my life to Him that day. You know, this is a daily program for me. I'm capable of living with myself. I'm capable of living with other people. I'm capable of love. I'm capable of being loved. And all the excuses for drinking, Dave finds in three things. Resentment of people and situations. Self-pity. Poor old little Dave, you know. And getting anxious about tomorrow. And these people, God, love them. They showed me a way that I can live one day at a time without one drink. And for that, and the God that I understand in this fellowship, I'll be eternally grateful for the rest of my life. Thank you. Sylvia. Hello.
4: I'm Sylvia and I'm an alcoholic and I belong to the Port Macquarie Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, today, I was sitting there just thinking, and today has been a very lovely day. And uh, here this afternoon we were talking about the conferences and, you know, spacing them out, and i oh, please God that they don't alter the... Uh, our national uh, conference... Uh, convert, uh, Convention because we renew so many beautiful acquaintances, people we've known, uh, people that we haven't met yet, and we come to meet them, and uh, it just leaves a beautiful feeling. As a matter of fact, things that have happened over the last couple of days have really had a high. And I've had quite a few 24 hours of sobriety, but I'm sober today, as Dave made the reference of today, yes, I'm sober today. Uh, today, I can read the steps. I can concentrate on them. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I couldn't do that. I had lost lack of concentration, uh, decency, love, full of resentments, hate, jealousy, jealous of my sister, uh, But most of all, I hated myself. I don't believe I was born to finish up the type of woman I did finish. Uh, I didn't come from an alcoholic family. I didn't come from a broken home. But I am an alcoholic. I've tried many times since I've been sober to look at my family and nowhere along the line can I trace any alcoholism. But I accept myself for what I am. I'm not the bad person I thought I was. I'm a sick person wanting to recover. And again it comes back to that fact. One day at a time. My alcoholism is improving a little bit. Each day. And I can face the day. And this morning I said to my husband when he woke up, I'd been lying there for about an hour from five o'clock till just after six. And I was reminiscing on things that have happened this particular day and yesterday. And the joy it gave me. And I was meditating in my own personal communication with God. And I have no hesitation and saying God today. And I had been brought up in a good family as a child, taken to church and Sunday school, belonged to everything in the church. But alcoholism deprived me of all this. And then I got to the stage when my brother was killed. I couldn't understand God taking a little baby. And then when my husband died, that was the absolute climax. There couldn't be a God, because why could God do this to good people? And so my alcoholism improved dramatically. I really went down the lane, down the gutter. And I finished in the gutter too. I was picked up out of the gutter in my drinking days. And I finished in all sorts of dives. In streets in the city of Sydney today, I wouldn't even walk down the middle of the day but I had no fear of those things those days because of my desperate need for alcohol. And those among us that drank in the war years know how hard it was to get grog. And so I would go to any length to get grog. I've done all sorts of things. But I finished up, by the time A found me, I was a complete derelict every facet of the word and when I got to my first or my third meeting at North Sydney, my first two meetings I don't remember much about because I still drank in between those meetings but the third meeting at North Sydney on the Monday night I literally ran because I wondered what these people had and at that particular time I had nothing and nobody to get sober for Absolutely nothing. Anything I'd had of value had been sold or pawned or lost. And so at that third meeting where I heard it said, I could leave that meeting and I need never drink again. Up till today, that's just how it's happened. These people had told me that. There were only a very few people at that meeting. But those people talked to me after the meeting. And they said, there'll be times that you might want a drink, but you won't need a drink. Make sure you have phone numbers. Well, I might add, I was living in a dirty little room in, in North Sydney, and I didn't even have the price of a phone call after the time, let alone have a phone And they said, well, if you can get to a phone, get to a meeting. And this is what I did. And there were times I had to walk from North Sydney across the Harbour Bridge to the Old End meeting. And I did it because I was desperate. I wanted again what these people had to offer. They told me again, I repeat, that I could leave that meeting and need never drink again, and that's today's just how it's been. But there were times that I wanted to drink there were times I thought about a drink, but I didn't pick it up, and in my years of sobriety, I suppose, looking back at my drinking period, I've had so many problems and so many things happen that I would have rushed to the bottle. But I never did. I rushed to my sponsor. Unfortunately, he's not with us today. But he was a fantastic help to me. And I could pour my heart out to him. Or I'd get to a meeting. Or I'd phone somebody. But I never picked up that fatal drink. Because I don't ever want to go back to the hell that I came out of. And this is what it would do to me. I not only drank, right from the beginning, alcohol gave me a headache. I wasn't sane enough or mature enough to know that if I don't pick a drink up, I wouldn't have become addicted to drugs. I lived for a period of time in New Guinea. I tried desperately there to take my life. I overdosed on more than one occasion. And it's only by the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous that I am alive today. I often joke about it, but I'm dead serious. But I've often said, oh, you know, he never had any room upstairs for me. So he still wanted me down here. He wanted to make me suffer a bit more. But I don't suffer today. I don't suffer like I used to. I've had a lot of pain, yes, physical pain. But that doesn't worry me. That makes me know I'm alive. And the answer is here. Nowhere else among the people that have the same disease that I have. And at our meetings years ago, you don't hear it said a great deal now, but it used to be quoted, if we were a diabetic, we would have to have insulin for the remainder of our lives. Being an alcoholic, I have to have the type of treatment that helps the alcoholic. And the only type of treatment that there is any sort of relief at all in as associating with other members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I've made a comment, as a matter of fact, one of my women I sponsored made a comment today and she said, I can remember you saying a few years ago, if you only help one person, you can die happy. And this last two days, three people, three women I've renewed a beautiful friendship with that just because I was sober a message was given to me a seed was planted in me and from that seed I've been able to make transplants whether these transplants eventually die I don't know I'm not God I don't intend to play God but I just put the transplants there And it's up to them. But it does give one joy to see them still sober. And for me, it has been a fantastic convention. And I'm grateful to each and everyone here. I've got a lot of old friends and I've got a lot of new friends. Because it doesn't matter where we go. If we have the disease of alcoholism, Strangely enough, we're all accepted. And yet, basically, I'm still the same person I was. The only difference is I'm not drinking. I'm clean. I don't have mental blackouts. But for what it's worth, since I've been sober, I've had quite a few very bad nightmares. Really bad ones. But they don't upset me today. But apart from that I'm sober, I'm clean, not only in body but in mind also. And today I love today. There's love in my heart that I never knew about. Alcoholics Anonymous didn't give me back all the family I lost. Out of three children I have one daughter and out of five grandchildren I only have one grandchild, and God love her, she's 21 this month, uh, this year, and she's going for a world cruise shortly, or uh, by plane, and she knows I'm an alcoholic, but thank God she's never seen me drunk, and I can talk to her, and say so for this one grandchild, Ada I'm very, very grateful, but most of all, I'm grateful that i'm sober i'm grateful for the love that's given to me i can share love with my husband today and it's not shared with a bottle but like i did with my first husband and i loved him very dearly but the grog had to come first and that man never once told me i was an alcoholic but many 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 times he used to be heartbroken he'd say oh sylvia I don't know why you drink because you can't drink. And he knew nothing about alcoholism. He knew nothing about the disease. And so God took him. And he took him that I might get sober. It was a pretty hard thing to battle with for six years till I got to AA. But I am sober today. I've made my peace with the God that understands me. I don't profess to understand God but the God that understands me that always understood me. And again, I believe it was the prayers of my late husband, of my mother-in-law and my mother that Alcoholics Anonymous eventually found me. And I'm grateful to the fact that God spared my mother just long enough for me to get sober and only sober a few days but to be able to go and make my amends to her. And for this I'm grateful. But most of all, I'm grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous and God and to each and every one here, and I hope you all have as lovely a time as I've had. Thank you. Bill. <laughs> Bill.
5: Hi, friends. I'm Bill, and uh, I'm an alcoholic. And... Hi. I'm from Queensland. Uh, I belong to a Woodbridge group. In uh, Brisbane currently and it's nice to be here. Uh, I feel a little bit nervous. Uh, I came here tonight I I got a ticket in my pocket to go to a dance you know and I thought there's some I couldn't think of a nicer place to be on a Saturday night but at a meeting. Uh, I might get to a dance later but uh, (laughs) however uh, I'll get my thoughts together in a minute. I uh, um, I had 17 years of drinking. I'm not, I'm not going to go into a drink vlog or anything. I started at uh, 13 on, on the banks of the Bogan River in New South Wales. Uh, a couple of fellas had a bottle of plant there, and they asked me what I like a drink, and, uh, and it was the only social drink I ever remember having. And uh, it made me feel the way I thought I wanted to feel, and uh, it uh, helped me to be the person I thought I wanted to be. And... uh at twenty, i uh, I'd uh, I'd been drinking with a school of fellows in North Queensland for a long time, and they all died, but one, and he's uh, he's in Charter Stairs, and I'm here, and they bought my sobriety for me over a long period of time. I approached Alcoholics Anonymous at twenty. I'll be thirty-nine this year. I uh, I've worked talking about it this afternoon. I've spent nearly half my life around Alcoholics Anonymous. So. Hasn't always been in Alcoholics Anonymous, so unfortunately. And I came to AA. Uh, I was coming off a bender and, and I was sitting in a pub in Brisbane uh, on my own. And I saw a young man and a young woman about my age walk past this hotel. And they were hand in hand and they were laughing and enjoying life. And I wondered why I couldn't live the way they were living. And I went to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, on my own and the lady at the uh, central office in brisbane her name was phyllis then it was a long time ago and she gave me a who me and she said uh take this and read it and if you think you have a problem there's a meeting in the next room tonight and i went back to the pub and i read this who me and it had this uh, little questionnaire in there you know and i thought i was a pretty smart guy in those days and uh, i love questionnaires you know anything to prove i was smarter than anybody else uh, and, and and I was here. You know, I had 15 positive answers for 20 questions, so, and I got the other five up later. But uh, <laughs> so so anyway, I went to I went to the meeting that night. You know, in, in uh, it was in Venus Chambers in in Wickham Street in the Valley in Brisbane, and uh, and I went into this meeting, and there were about 15 people there, and they they were happy. And uh, I, as soon as I walked in the door, uh, I could feel the affinity. With these people, you know, I, I I could physically feel something, and I spoke with them, and 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 I, I felt that they understood the way I felt and the way I thought. Uh, prior to this, I thought I was the only fellow walking around on this planet like me, and, and they told me that night that I could leave the room that night, and I need never drink again. You know, and I was horrified. Uh, and, uh, but it applies to me as much tonight as it ever has. You know, I can, I can leave here tonight and I need never drink again if I so desire. And I know this, I know this for a fact. Uh, and I had a look at the program, they told me I had a 3 disease which was spiritual and mental and physical. And I was also a pretty emotional sort of a fellow too, you know. And I could understand the physical uh, suffering of an alcoholic and the physical craving and, and that. Uh, I didn't believe that I had any mental deficiencies. Uh, I couldn't understand that at all because uh, the way I was at that time, I'd been that way all my life. Uh, I had never lived any other type of a life than than what I was living at that time when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and so I didn't understand that I was different uh, in, in the I should be living and thinking differently to what I was. So I didn't think that I had anything mentally wrong with me, and And spiritually, I was totally bankrupt, I I realise now. You know, I was uh, verging on atheism. Uh, I went to a Catholic school, like many of us did when I was a little boy, and... uh, and I had the nuns, one nun would be telling me about how Jesus loved me very much and, and then I'd go into the next classroom and the nun there would be telling me if I didn't toe the line like I was going for the big cook. You know, and, and, and typical alcoholic fashion, you know, I resigned from something I didn't understand when I was eight years of age. You know, and, 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 and uh, and through my teen years, you know, I had been in a lot of trouble, and, and I'd, I'd asked this God for help, but he didn't come across with this side of the bargain, you know. And so I said, well, there mustn't be any God. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been known to stand in front of Catholic churches and abuse God for the impertinence of putting me on this earth many times, you know. And Anyway, I came to the meetings and I loved the people in AA and, and the fellowship, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to do these steps, you know. Uh, I said, alright, I'm an alcoholic. I admitted I was an alcoholic, uh, but I couldn't accept it. And that's as far as I ever looked at the program. And I stayed sober for about six weeks and then I went back to the bush and, and, uh, I remember a little friend, that many of us know in here. Uh, sports sent me my first big book when I was in the bush and, and I read it there and uh, but I still couldn't I still couldn't accept that uh, uh, that I had to stop drinking but I kept coming back to AA you know and, and over a period of 10 years I came to AA and I went away and I still wanted what these people had and and I started to do most of the yets that I heard about around AA and uh and life got pretty dreadful. The last three years of my drinking was uh, nothing but hell. Uh, I, I became a, a very uh, mad person in the community. I believed then and I still believe now that the last three years of my drinking I should have been put away for the benefit of the community. Uh, I was a dangerous man walking the streets. I, I remember trying homicide eleven times and fortunately I failed. Uh, but at the same time, you know I, I I used to be able to justify in my own mind that I was doing the right thing, uh, and people wouldn't leave me, I just wanted to be left alone, and they wouldn't leave me alone and they wouldn't they tried to take away from me the rights to live the way I believe I wanted to live and Finally, how I stopped drinking uh, I got married towards the end of my drinking I, I don't know why I got married, but I did you know we we make some of these mistakes, some of us had had uh, and I was married four months, you know, and my bride of four months came to me one morning. I don't know where she used to sleep, but she wouldn't stay in the same house as me. And, and uh, But she she came home one morning and she had this piece of paper and and it had been signed by a couple of doctors, you know, and she said, you're totally insane and, and you have to be put away. And, and she said, I'm going to have you committed to, to Wollstone Park. And I said, now, wait a minute, you know, like, we we'll have to look at this sort of thing, you know. And, and I said, what if I, well, she didn't know that I'd ever been near Alcoholics Anonymous. She didn't know that I I knew there was an answer, you know. And and, and I said, well, I'll, I'll go over to the hospital and see if I can get off it, you know. And, and I went up this Pav4, and, and they wouldn't have me at Pav4 in Brisbane, so then they referred me to Laos and House, and, and Laos and House, they didn't want me either, you know they said you can go into wake hall if you like we've got a beautiful program for people like you up in wake island and i said that will be great anywhere i wanted to get away from my wife you know and i wanted to beat this committal order because i knew that if i'd been committed they would have certified me and i knew that they'd fill me up with drugs and i knew that i'd probably never ever get out of the place and so i went into wake island and and in Wakefield they put me in the slammer there, you know, one of those little rooms with the with the window in the door, and and I was in there for five days, and when I came out of there, I did, I remember all I remember of it now was there was this fella singing on the wings of a snow white dove for background music, you know. If I ever get him, I'll kill him.
6: <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh,
5: and then I came out of there and, and I said to the fella, I said, what did you just give me? And he said, well, we didn't give you very much at all. He with some dilantin and that for, so he wouldn't take any more seizures. And, and I said, how long have I been in here? And he said, five days, you know. And, and how I'm alive, I don't know. Uh, but there was the first miracle in my life, you know. Here I was. I was free from alcohol. I was, I was alive. I didn't believe it was possible to live without alcohol, and I was free of it. And I wandered around in that place for about three weeks, uh, in a bit of a daze, and I remembered a lovely old lady who had been in Alcoholics Anonymous years before when I first came in Brisbane, and her name was Josie. And Josie did the first step in this same place, and Josie used to say at meetings that all you're asked to do in Alcoholics Anonymous is to try. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll go out of here and I'll go back to AA. There isn't anywhere else left. And I'll try just, just one more time. And I wanted to be sober. And the only reason I wanted to be sober because I didn't want to go around hurting anybody anymore. I didn't want to see those tears in my wife's eyes anymore, you know. Or anyone else's eyes that day, you know. And I thought, well, if that's all I get out of life just to be sober and, and not hurt anybody else. Well, that'll be enough. And I came out of there and I I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a look at the steps again, you know. And I accepted that I was an alcoholic and I didn't do any more about it. I had a look through the program, you know. And I got to step three and I said, well, one day if I ever find some sort of a higher power that I can understand, I'll hand my life over to it. And that was the decision I made and I left it right there. And I went to a lot of meetings in five and a half years and I sat in the back row with a closed mind and I was unwilling to listen to anybody. I was unwilling to learn anything. I would not communicate with people. I didn't want a sponsor. I didn't believe I needed one. And I got worse. Uh, uh, alcoholism is progressive if we don't do anything about ourselves. You know, it was in me. Uh, and I tried to manage my own life for five and a half years. The only thing I didn't do was pick up a drink. If you ask me today how I stayed sober, I've got to say I don't know, because I don't know. But in that five and a half years, a lot of things happened to me, you know. The wife went, and the house went, and the car went, and everything else went materially. Uh, I had no friends. Uh, I started on geographicals all over Queensland just to try and retain my sanity. And I finally finished in a little town called Gladstone. And if anybody here hasn't been to Gladstone, don't go. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's really bad news there. You know, and, you, know you want to go into a depression just driving a Gladstone. You know. But however, uh, I, I was living there in this little flat, and and, uh, and I was, you know, I was at the end. I was at the end of my road mentally, and uh, and about this time somebody came along, and he gave me a tape, and it was a tape of an American gentleman who came out here in 1978. His name was Wesley Parrish. And he said, You yeah, listen to this tape of this American boy. He's got some good news here. And I, I, I didn't like Americans, you know. And I reckon they are all full of wind. Uh, and anyway, I said, Well, give us the, I'll take it home. And I only took it home to keep this fellow happy. That's so, all. We'll shut him up, see. So, and, and, one night I put this tape on by mistake.
7: Uh, you know.
5: And, 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 and this fellow, he was talking about Bill Wilson on the tape at the particular part I put on and, and how, when Bill Wilson was in hospital and Ebby came to see him and Ebby told him to pray as an experiment and he, and he said, if there's a God up there, show yourself to me. And, and it worked for Bill Wilson, you know, and a few days after this, uh, it must, it must have stuck in my head because a few days after this, I was sitting at the table in the same flat with a rifle and a big book and a bottle of methylated spirits and the power of choice. And I was going to shoot myself. And I, I was fair dinkum. And I, and I thought about this shooting myself. And, and I and I remember a mess that I cleaned up in Sydney in Victoria Street some years before when alkie had uh, done the wrong thing. And I hadn't forgotten the smell of the blood. And I thought, I don't want to leave a mess like this for somebody to clean up. And I thought of a little girl that I had, a daughter, she's a very beautiful little girl, and I thought it's a terrible shame that it would be for her. And so I didn't shoot myself, and, and then I had a look at this bottle of methylated spirits, you know. And I didn't, I didn't even then remember the physical suffering so much of alcoholism, but you know, I remember the loneliness and the remorse and the indignity and the fear, and I haven't still forgotten them either, and the shame for the things I did when I drank and the guilt. And, and i didn't want to go back to that i didn't want to go back to that life where i drank to escape from the life i created with drink and so it wasn't very hard to push the bottle of methylated spirits away either and i had all i had left was the big book you know and, and i opened this big book at random and it came to a page in chapter five where there are three very pertinent ideas it says a that we are alcoholic and cannot manage our own life and b that no human power can relieve our alcoholism and c that God could and would if he was sought, you know? And like Bill W, I decided to experiment. And, and I prayed, I got on my knees and I said, if there's a God up there, just show me one day of this happiness that I've heard all these people and Alcoholics Anonymous talking about to prove to me that there is such a thing and to prove to me even that you, of your existence, you know? And, and I got one day, that's all I asked for and that's all I got, you know? And that's the way it works for me. And the next day I asked again, you know. And I asked again the next day and I got another day. And the next day I got another day because I asked for it, you know. And this this went on for two weeks. And I thought, you know, I started to read this book and I read in the back about the spiritual experiences, you know, in the back of the big book, in the appendices. And I read about honesty and open-mindedness and willingness and that if we practice a blatant denial you know we get nowhere and i'd been doing this for years you know i had to surrender totally the first step and, and, and you know i had a hand over and and at that night was the first time i'd ever asked for anything on a daily basis in my life you know i, I could never understand this 24-hour program that people talk about i just couldn't comprehend it at all you know Anyway, after a couple of weeks after this happened, you know, I decided that I didn't know how to live. And I had to find someone who would teach me. So I tried again. I had a yarn of this fella that had become my newfound friend, you know. I said, just show me somebody who can teach me how to live with a little bit of dignity and self-respect, you know. And I went to bed and the next morning I woke up and I could remember a man that I'd known in Alcoholics Anonymous in Sydney years before and he was in my mind. I hadn't seen him for years and I couldn't get him out of my mind and I thought well, that's that must be the man I'd go and talk to. So so I snatched my job that day and packed the bags and I off and the last time I heard of this fellow was on the Gold Coast and I went there but he wasn't there. But I waited and he came about five months later and I spoke to him and he showed me how to live my life still. Today, you know, he was the right person. You know. Great things have happened to me in this fellowship, you know. I, uh, I don't have the material things back and I don't particularly care. I don't have the wife back. Uh, I have the daughter back. You know, that's very nice. All she knows about me is my daddy doesn't drink beer. Uh, and I haven't had a drink in her lifetime, you know. Uh, I found out some things recently about the way I have to live in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, for the first five and a half years I came to a lot of meetings and I didn't do the steps and I went backwards. The last eight months I've been up in in the country in Queensland just about loaning it. And I've been doing all I can about the program but I haven't been getting many meetings, you know. And I started to go backwards again. And that's why I came here this weekend. Uh, I knew I had to come here. I snatched the job again to get here. And I don't care, you know, I'm willing to go to any lengths to remain sober and to retain what I have got from Alcoholics Anonymous and to make as much progress as I can. I've had a taste of this freedom and I want more of it. And, you know, I've already got most of what I came here for. I listened here in this room yesterday morning to Archie McKinnon speaking, you know, and he taught me all about gratitude again. And then last night I heard a woman speak over in the other hall there and she taught me about courage you know, tomorrow morning I'm going to the spiritual concept meeting uh, and I'll learn about my friend there, you know. But I'm very thankful to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, for the life that it's showing me how to lead, you know. And I, I don't have much anxiety in my life today. I do have troubles, but I can manage them, you know. Uh, I live very comfortably. Uh, I think it's, Steve from Gordon or something says though I live with a great abundance, you know, and I do sometimes, you know, I've got a pretty good car and money in my pocket, but it don't really matter to me, you know, but uh, I live real well. Uh and I I do what I can about this program. I keep myself available where I can to help people. Uh but, you know, I'm just so happy to be here tonight, you know and uh, I still reckon that's much better than the dance. Thanks very much. Jane.
2: Jane, do we hear from you?
8: Hi, I'm Jane. I'm an alcoholic and a member of the Stanmore Group in Sydney. Hi, Jane. And I feel really nervous. Um, well, I've been in, in Alcoholics Anonymous for um, about... Well, I've been... It's been six months since I had my last drink or drug, and um before that i I um drank and used other drugs for eight years, and I could never do any of it successfully. you know, my life was unmanageable, and um it had been unmanageable before i ever ever drank and um I never knew any other way too you know I'd always felt the way I, I did and still do sometimes today you know I didn't know that it, there was any different way to feel and um I sort of I had a fairly normal upbringing but I always felt different I always felt like a um, square peg in a round hole and I didn't know why and uh, I didn't know there was anything I could do about it and then when I drank it sort of um You know, it filled the void and it made me comfortable. And that's what I chased for the rest of the time I was after the effect. And um, I got it for a long time. You know, I guess in the beginning, I don't know, I guess there must have been some good times. But for the last, you know, five years, it was really misery and um, confusion. So I don't remember much that I had a very good time at all. And... um, It just went down, you know, it never really improved for me. I just sort of ran around and moved from place to place and I could never get my life together. I was always um, saying, oh, you know, I have to get it together. I have to sort myself out, but I could just never do it and I couldn't understand why. And, um, you know, I I sort of had a lot of theories about what was wrong with me, but uh, I never did anything about it. And um I guess I just had to run my course and get sort of sick enough and um you know, last year that, that happened. I tried other ways. I I tried to um you know, I tried psychiatry and that sort of didn't work for me. And um I'd really come to my point I guess and, and AA found me. I didn't find AA and I didn't sort of come to AA because I thought I had a, a drinking problem or a drugging problem and I didn't think I was you know i didn't think i was an alcoholic i didn't understand anything about this disease at all i was brought here and um i'm really grateful that i was because it might have taken quite a few more years you know for me to sort of find out and once i got here i identified um you know i wanted to go to Al-Anon first because i figured i was an Al-Anon uh candidate and uh once I sat in an AA meeting, I knew I was, that's where I belonged, and, uh, so I continued, and, uh, once I stopped drinking, of course, I knew I was an alcoholic, and, uh, cause that's all I could think about, and, uh, and so it sort of began, and since then, you know, I guess it's been, uh, sort of really, you know, up and down. <laughs> it's sort of, uh, I have a lot to learn, you know, I, I sort of, it's only starting to, I guess the fog's only just starting to lift. I didn't realize how confused I was. I really came in very proud and thought I knew it all. And uh I'm only just finding out now that I don't know anything much at all and uh that I have to listen. And that was something I found really difficult to do was to listen. And um, I mean, you know, it's wonderful to be here at the convention. I find this difficult sometimes too. Such a big thing with lots of people, but at least I can handle it, you know. Whereas before I just wouldn't even attempt to handle it. I just sat in my house and, uh, and just isolated myself for years. And at least now I'm sort of willing to have a go. I'll fail often, but, um, that's okay. And, um, you know, at least today I know what I am. I'm an alcoholic and I know what I have to do if I want to get better and get well and, uh, live, you know, a, a life that I want. Um, And that's certainly a big relief because I always wanted to know what was wrong with me and I just, you know, I didn't know where to look for the answers. And now I know. And um, I don't think I can say anymore. I'm just grateful to be here and thanks very much. Ernest.
6: Ernest. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Ernest and I'm an alcoholic. Um, This is my first convention and uh, a little bit overawed by the whole thing. I'm only some 13 months into the program and uh, so much happened so fast. Uh, A little over a year ago I was just out of um, Langton Clinic and I had had a bust and I'd been coming to AA approximately six months prior to that. And I walked through the door of um, the group that I belonged to on on the Saturday morning to a beginner's meeting. And uh, my ex-sponsor, who was waiting for me to reappear, apparently he knew I would. He looked at me and said, uh, have you taken the first step yet? And uh, I was just talking to this to Trevor before the meeting. And uh, it appears that he knew a lot more about me than I knew about myself. And I was rather affronted by this. And, gee, at least he could have done was to pat me on the back and say what a good boy you are to get back. Uh, but getting back was the important thing. And from that time forward, uh, the realization came to me that um, I couldn't sort of sit on the fence with AA. I couldn't have a bit of both worlds. I tried the drinking thing again. And uh, I didn't, I certainly didn't want that. Anymore, so I had to make a commitment to AA and to myself if I wished to survive. Uh, because during the, that brief period of drinking that I did indulge in, um, thoughts of, um, so thoughts of suicide which I hadn't had before, and the only reason I didn't was because I was in a, I was up in the first Floor of a building uh, for some time, and I didn't want to jump because I thought I might hurt myself. <laughs> Terrific, Cowered right to the last. So, you know, when, when I got in, I realised that then I had to take the, the programme seriously, and with that in mind, I, I did everything my sponsors suggested I should do to the best of my ability, and it's been a very rewarding year. Uh, within the space of this year, I've done what I could in in the way of basic service to the group I belong to. And I didn't like doing that either. I didn't like it at all. But I knew it had to be done. And already I, I've been the secretary in a minor way for six months. So I've uh, let, let a beginner's meeting for for the last three months. And uh, my group has people come from Langton Clinic on a Saturday morning. Um and I, I was able to see within these last 3 months what i was like a year ago um people were asking the same questions asking of me the same questions that i'd asked of other people about a year previously and i, I was able to see already the the small amount of growth that, that that i've i've been able to achieve with the help of my group my sponsor and him up there, and then that took a little bit of um, coming to uh, terms with too. I, I led a, a religious life as, as a child that I didn't want to didn't want to lead because my parents were very religious people, and they preached a, a god of fear, and uh, it wasn't a god of love at all. And I got away from that as soon as I was old enough to get out into the world and. I guess with a large chip on my shoulder, because I didn't understand what what a God of love was all about at all. And take, it took me some little time, and I had to accept the fact that, that there was a God, and that too was was a very um, hard thing for me to do, after having lived for about 25, 26 years as, as the God of my own little microcosm, and not a very successful one either, I, I wouldn't say. Because when I when I first got to the fellowship, I had three dollars that I that I'd managed to bum off the bloke that twelve uh, stepped me. That was all I had. Not, not not a great deal for 43 years' effort in, in life. I, I didn't think at the time, because I was still thinking on material terms only. Now I, I, I've got so much more. Not very much more materially. I do have a job, and I've just recently had a had a holiday the first holiday that I've earned for 12 months work in about eight years I think and that's only due, due to AA uh, little things friends people I can ring up on the telephone people who, who call people who call me uh, what family I have uh, is AA and I'm possibly not a very good son of that family but I'm very proud
2: to be one thanks Trevor Just a word of explanation, we did start this meeting early, so if anybody feels that they need to get up and move out, or even go off to some other venue, please don't be embarrassed, uh, we quite understand. Uh, the meeting's likely to go on for some time, I've no need to uh, finish it off when the time comes, so, uh, you know, it might be necessary for some of you to move out. Pat, could we hear from you please?
9: Good evening friends, my name's Pat and I'm an alcoholic, thanks. Ah, oh, dear, I'm a bit nervous too. I didn't expect to be cool. Um, First of all, I'd like to say thank you to this fellowship and all you people for this wonderful life that I've found in AA today, you know, through this program and you people. But it has given me my life back. And um, my womanhood, my self-respect and my dignity, I have these things back today. I didn't have these things. I lost them all through my alcoholism. And um, today I'm living the life that I always wanted to live and didn't think I'd be able to ever live, that there would be nothing left for me, just drinking myself into the uh either an early grave or the um, rat house. I had 27 years of drinking. I picked up my first drink at 18. I was brought up in a home from the age of five because of my mother's alcoholism. And I grew up very bitter and resentful when I was old enough to know that I was in this home and had a mother out there. whom I thought didn't want me. Today I understand her, who she is. Well, she's not here today. She died an alcoholic, but not drunk at the time, about four years ago. And uh, I never ever forgave her all that time because of uh, that unhappy childhood I had in those homes. And um, she was an alcoholic, as I said, and uh, I drank with her right through until she died, before she went to hospital. And uh, I think myself very lucky to have been given this chance in life, this new... uh, this uh, new lifestyle, and entirely different lifestyle to what I was used to living. And I uh, I do think myself very lucky that I was able to, uh, that I was given this chance and my mother never got it. As I said, I drank for 27 years. I drank a lot. I drank the methylated spirits and the methyl and the wine mixed together. When I couldn't get a drink, that's what when I did turn to methyl, I... Uh, Thought it was degrading. Anybody who ever drank methyl earlier on, that I'd never drink it, and I was to drink it. Um, Well, I suffered that when I picked my first drink up at 18, I can remember I suffered right through until I came into AA. I've been uh, two years and eight months in AA now, and I suffered these blackouts, the change of personality and uh, loneliness and the emptiness I always felt and uh, that first drink I had, it, um, it filled that emptiness up and uh, it helped me commu- to communicate. I was a loner and I could get out and I could mix with the rest of them and do the things what I wanted to do, get out and dance and all the rest of it. But then I was my old self after i'd uh the drink had wore off, anyhow, I got married, and that marriage never lasted. This fellow said to me, "Any woman that drank like drinks like you did he, I didn't let him see the way I drank before I married him, but I really let myself go after I married that marriage didn't last; it lasted four years, and a few kiddies and he left in that time there's been a a few de facto—that was 23 years ago—and there'd been a few de facto relationships. They were all alcoholics, and um, as I say, I couldn't—I didn't know how to be a normal wife, how to be a normal loving mother to my children. And I still get this shot back into my face uh, today from the adult uh, family that I have because I'm in AA. And I've had to detach from them in a loving way the best I could. That was about six months ago. I couldn't see why I heard them telling me in AA all the time I did pick up a drink after 20 months in AA. And it was through uh, one of the reasons. It was these three uh, three children having goes at me <coughs> and wearing me down. And uh, I got depressed and I picked up a drink. Telling me not to come to AA, I had to come back and get the family together. Anyhow, I won't go into a drunken lot. I came into AA uh, at the end of 79. The fellow I was living with, we were drinking all through the Christmas, and I was trying to cook Christmas dinner on um, New Year's Eve day. And we were drunk, and it was always like that. You know, I could never, I was always drunk the week before Christmas, always through drink uh, Christmas, and it'd be after uh, New Year, around about New Year, I could cook that Christmas dinner. That's how it was. I got my first Christmas dinner in 80, 1980, because I was sober that year. And uh, so my kids, I'd had the Christmas fare there and, in the house already, and the fridge filled up, but it was never, ever cooked. So anyhow, an argument, uh, we were arguing down each other's throats all that day, and uh, he came at me while I was doing the vegetables. He didn't want me to cook this Christmas dinner. Um, he was jealous about the other boarder being in the house and that I was cooking a Christmas dinner for him. And if he'd have told me that earlier on, I'd have thrown all the vegetables to the backyard and put the turkey back in the fridge and let it go but I didn't know what, what he was carrying on about. So anyhow, I picked up the carving knife and I stabbed him in the lungs during that uh, bit of a fight at the table. And he was taken to hospital and he was 15 minutes off death by the court uh, hearing when uh, the ambulance and the paramedics were called in. He was 15 minutes off death And he was very fortunate to have uh, been able to get to a couple of meetings while he was a patient at the uh, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. And he was able to get to a couple of those meetings. And he came out three weeks later to get his clothes, to go to a halfway house. And he told me he was in AA and he didn't want a drink because I offered him a drink. And uh, I said, what's AA about? And he said, you wouldn't understand. (laughs)
7: <laughs>
9: so uh, he used to come down and have tea every night. Come down and have tea of night time, and pay me for his tea, and ask could he have half an hour's rest to go to these AA meetings. And he still wouldn't. I, he still wouldn't tell me what they were about. So I snook in while I was asleep and looked through his pockets, and I found that just for today, carb. And I saw the God part mentioned on it. And when he woke up and came out to have his tea after when he was leaving, I, t- I said, huh, I know what it's about. I said, you'll end up holier than thou. <laughs> you and your God. I always believed in God, but uh I always t- called myself a child of the damned. Not re- I reckon that he didn't give me a fair go in life, but I was put, in a- put into a home at the age of five without a mother and father's love, and we were ill-treated in that second home from the age of ten till I left. And I didn't have much time for God and my mother. So anyhow, I saw that Just For Today card, and I saw God, and uh, I thought it was a religious turnout, and I didn't want any part of it, but I thought it was good for him. He wasn't drinking, and uh, I didn't want it. I certainly needed it, but not knowing it. Um, three months went by, and I saw him up the street, and he was still still hadn't had a drink all that time. Six months went by. In this time, he wouldn't have ever come back near the house after first week because we were always wrangling down each other's throats. And he came back six months later with a doll's house that he'd made for our baby. And uh, I said to him that night. I'd like to go to one of your AA meetings. And he said, don't have a drink tomorrow night and call up the halfway house and come with myself and the boys. Well, at that time, I was a bit frightened because the drinker deserted me. All the uh, glamour had gone out of it and I was a bender drinker. And uh, it wouldn't do nothing for me and I was left a bit scared and frightened wondering what had happened, because I just drank to knock myself out, woke up back into it and drank on to knock myself out and didn't want to see anything or know anything. And uh, I went to that first meeting at uh, Stanmore on the 18th of June, 79, with him. And as Bill said, I uh, felt home and hose that first night I walked into that meeting that affinity, that physical affinity, I felt that you know and I knew there was something here for me and the search was over. Because I knew that he'd kept sober for six months and uh, I thought if he could do it, I can do it. I kept on coming to meetings every night. I loved the meetings because I loved the friendship. And I didn't know much what they were talking about because my mind was very scattered. My three older children, at the time I came into AA, were confer- conferring between themselves to put me in uh, one of the uh, psychiatric centres. I couldn't see that I was going mad, but uh, I know a lot about it today. I was very scattered, and course uh, so I thought the uh, I knew there was something wrong with me, and I thought to be mad uh, like one person in Newtown hops up and down the street on one leg, and I thought that's insanity. And then there's another woman; she walks up and down the street crosses over and up and down that street all day. Well, I thought, that's insanity. I'm not mad. I'm not doing those sort of things yet. But I was on the brink of uh, going a little bit mad and uh, my memory was uh, going on me and uh, I couldn't remember nothing. Uh, even sober, which I wasn't very much. There was never the times I was sober. It was just on a bender and back off to get a little bit physically well, a bit of soup into me and back onto it again. So anyhow I kept on coming to meetings so I stopped sabre for 20 months and I was to pick up a drink again and I was very angry about uh, having to drink again and uh, I didn't know why I drank so I thought I, I was working these steps to the best of my ability so I had to go and have a look at these steps and see and at myself and I had a look through the steps again and uh, the first one I'd admitted I was powerless, I knew I was the alcoholic, but I hadn't accepted that. Uh, so today I fully accepted that I am this person, the alcoholic, and I cannot pick up that first drink. Um, step two, I, I believe that. Uh, step three was um, I'd handed my life and my will over, but I didn't understand this part where I was taking my will back. So today I've made the full surrender, I've thrown in the towel and the hat and the boots and the gloves, stockings, the whole lot. (laughs) Um,
7: uh,
9: Four, I had to go back there in four and look at myself. Well, I picked up, I uh, was on the dope six years, my daughter got me on to smoke a marijuana so I wouldn't drink, so she ended up giving me a a double problem because I, ha- I had to go back to the drink. I couldn't stop just on, t- on the uh, dope. It wasn't uh, strong enough for me. And I wanted the drink, so I was mixing the both of them and she was supplying it. Um, so I had a look and I had picked up a smoke and I was smoking again. She said, this doesn't make you mad and you are serene and you're not stabbing people and half <coughs> killing all these husbands that you had every time you got drunk which did happen. Every one of them's nearly been dead, and I've nearly been dead too, and in hospital, and nearly lost my life. And uh, so I, there was the smoking, and I had this practicing alcoholic uh, living in my house, and uh, I was playing God to him, holding his head up above water, and uh, he he helped pull me down, and uh, I drank again after I'd. Seen that, you know, he was pulling me down. I had to drive around and look for another flat for him and got him away after 18 months when I was a wreck back down to... And then I picked up a drink after I got him out. Um, then I had a little girl who was a result of my drinking and she's classed as a, assessed by the Children's Hospital as an alcoholic syndrome baby. And she's a bit demanding of me and my time and uh I couldn't manage with her my... The fellow that left, he said, you're doing a marvellous job. And uh, I said, if only I knew, you know, I'm not really, I, I'm not coping that well. And she's getting me down mentally. So I put her in a church home, and I detached from those three older older children. I don't go near them now, and I don't have them over at the house where they only come over to nag at me when they're all full of dope and have goes at me. So I've uh, detached from them and that was six months ago i've done all this and i've really rightly only got sober since october since i went through these steps and uh had a look at myself and today i'm very grateful for this fellowship of AA, what it's given me because i am living one day at a time i was not living one day at a time i didn't understand what that meant and that this was a daily program i'm following this pro- program to the best of my ability living by it today and it's been great results for me. I've got this inner happiness in this, uh is my first convention and it's lovely, you know, I've got this lovely inner happiness within me. And things have been really great, you know, and if I just keep it one day at a time to do his will and not my will. I hand over every morning and I don't ever forget of a night time. I do that tenth step in inventory and I thank my loving God, I found a loving God here in AA today. And I'm very grateful to all you people for helping me. Thank my name's Bruce and I'm an alcoholic. Hi,
0: Bruce. Hi. Uh, that was unexpected? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, uh, I'm a primary alcoholic. Uh, I started oh. drinking at 14. Uh, I was diagnosed as an alcoholic six years later uh, and introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous Langton Clinic. And uh, like one of the speakers tonight, uh, that was about 19 or 20 years ago. Uh, unlike that speaker... Uh, I wasn't uh, all that impressed with you members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I uh, I was more impressed with the hospital I was in. You know, uh, male and female patients. Uh, a few of those patients. Uh, I'm a bit nervous tonight. Uh, they worry me a bit. With microphones, but uh, you know, a few of those patients had been exposed to AA, and they told me that they were alcoholics, and uh, I identify with these people. You know, and. Uh, but I wasn't impressed, as I say, with AA. Uh, my first meeting I was more interested in making a quit at the uh, the trots, you know. Uh, the patients were parks and uh, back there uh, bets. But the uh, the next meeting at, uh, at Ramsgate, uh, you know, uh, uh, every speaker that night talked about the makeup of the alcoholic and I identified very, very strongly. But I was uh, a bit different, and uh, the difference being that uh, I hang around AA for eight years as an observer. Um, I believe looking back, uh, you know, I try to convince people I should be here, you know. Um, there was times in this 80-year twilight period that uh, I had to come to AA when I was in these sorts of places. But there was the other times, you know, when I was in the fits of despair and I'd crawl into a, a, a meeting like a magey dog and uh, i never ever declared myself an alcoholic and I was very anonymous. I'd park the company car three blocks away and all you knew about me was my name was Bruce and I lived down the block a couple of, a couple of blocks, you know. And, uh, and that was the way it was. And, uh, you know, I used to leave these meetings as an observer, and, uh, on my way back to the pub or the club, I'd start to say my story to myself, you know, uh, like I was imitating an AA speaker. My name was Bruce, and I left home at 14, and I ended up shacked up here, there, and everywhere, and, uh, this doctor said so and so, and the mother-in-law, the prospective mother mother-in-law said something else, and I'd get up with the latest tale of way, whether it was a hospitalisation or a suicide attempt or whatever it was, and I'd say, you know, those bastards wouldn't understand, you know. And uh, the madness of today, you know, how could I possibly expect you to understand I hadn't told you, you know. And, and this is the way it was, you know. But uh, many things kept me back, uh, coming back to this 80-year period. The uh, the hope that was generated at these meetings, uh, the things they told me from the floor of the meeting, because I had no chance before or after a meeting because I wasn't here. But for, from the floor of the meeting, they told me that if I was an alcoholic, if I kept coming long enough, I'd hear my story told. And if I didn't get AA, maybe AA would get me. And on one occasion, I took a seizure of a meeting at Newdown, you know, and I was cut off to an alcoholic hospital. And, uh, an AA member paid the first week in advance. And I never found that out to, to many years later. But, uh, this is the way it was for me. So, for that eight years, about the only thing I could, you know, you could say was that I kept coming, you know. And I eventually joined AA, you know, and, uh, uh I, uh, it was about 12 or 13 years ago. I got off the grog for 27 months, went to meetings nightly, and uh, all I was sharing for that 27 months in I.A. was experiences. And to do that, I had to be bombed out on Valium. And Valium was a dirty word in those days. And but I felt justified in taking these things because I was tired need them for the rest of my life. And I'd take these Valium, you know, before a meeting, and then I'd take a couple during the meeting if I, you know, hadn't been asked to speak. And at the end of the meeting, I'd take a couple more so I wouldn't drop the chairman, you know. And uh, I was mad, you know. And the meetings weren't long enough. You know, I was, uh, I was still running from life. I was running from the past. I was running from me. And, uh, you know, the, uh, my mind used to race at 100 mile an hour and, uh, you know, about 20 past nine, I started to get a bit of calmness. And then good night, nurse. See you tomorrow night. And I had to worry about not picking up a drink for 22 and a half hours. Again, looking back for that first 27 months of so-called membership of AA, I believe I was going to meetings because I was frightened I was going to drink on the way home. And I mentioned this one night and one of the old timers said, you know, you won't have a compulsion until you pick the next one out. Uh, well, I don't know what I had, whether it was a burning obsession, desire, but I had it, you know. And this is the way it was. And eventually, after 27 months of, uh, being misunderstood in you know, I, I, uh, you know, uh, it says in the big book, you know, to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. And I thought I had heaps to give, and I thought there must be somebody out there like me. And I got involved in a bit of social work, and I, I, I went in there with the right reasons, and, um, but, uh, you know, the madness, you know, I mean, uh, how could I help somebody else if I couldn't help me bloody self, you know? And, uh, this particular night in question, uh, I knew if I didn't talk to somebody at gut level, I would drink. And uh, AA had said, whatever you do, don't drink. And it was rather ironic this particular night that I'd done part of the first step of the, the girl I was working with. And, uh, you know, and to me, that was the, the first high, highlight of my association in AA because and for other alcoholics, it must be different or is different, but it's sort of like I was, you know. I found it very, very hard to trust, you know. And, uh, and over the years, many people tried to get the clues on what made me tick, but uh, all to no avail, you know. And this particular night, as I say, I'd done part of the fifth step. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, I told this person my whole life story from God go. And then I got a bit worried, and I took her out, and we got married a couple of weeks later. And uh, <laughs> I'm not playing to the crowd. You know, there's people here that know this is true, you know. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, that's the answer, you know. But it wasn't, because I drank again, and the madness was back. And the first four months I was married, I was in and out of AA like a yayo, and I was, uh, there was hospitalizations, and I'm not being dramatic, I believe, well I know I play my story down from the floor of a meeting, but the only way by this stage that I could get off the piss was to, to be hospitalized, and, uh, there was, a, a, at least four hospitalizations in the next twelve months, and, uh, and I ended up at the Army in home at Lidcombe, and, uh, it was about eight, eight and a half years, nine, nine years ago. And I choose to believe I've been petting in AA since then, you know. Uh, it, was like, it was a total of 20 hospitalisations for alcoholism, which is no record, but it was enough for me. And I reached a stage where I had to get up or die, and I'd heard that expression over the years in AA, and I used to think to myself, you yeah, know, that's punging it on a bit, and it's rather dramatic. But that's the way it was when I hit the arm in home at Lidcombe. The ha-ha was gone, you know, and uh, the psychologist said, told me everything you people have tried to tell me, you know, for so many years. You know, he told me that AA was the only answer. He told me I'd have to get back to it. Um, he told me many things, you know. He said that if I was for income I don't have to go through withdrawal once, and uh, you know there was many other things he, he told me. And every argument I put up with this guy why I couldn't make it in AA, you know, like I've been around so long and I've failed so often, and, and this bastard upset me, and somebody else said something else, you know, whatever it was, you know, he, he just shot me down in flames. And uh, I got introduced myself the first time in my life, and as I said earlier, you know, I choose to believe I've been fitting for AA. Along the way, I got out of there, I got back to AA, got back to the workforce, uh, got back to the wife, and we got transferred up to Port Macquarie. And uh, me, well, fell apart up there. I, uh, I found that I missed the get-up-or-die city attitude of AA, and uh, you know, and I, I felt that I was being taken on face value. You. you know, you members in Port Macquarie, you know, uh, you're only taken on face value. You. you know, you hadn't seen me in full flight, and uh, you know, and I was running to Sydney of a weekend. Thank Christ, it was a company car, you know, because uh, I was uh, doing miles and miles, you know, and uh, trying to regain this so-called serenity or calmness or whatever I, I had at that time. And, uh, you know, but I, I still, still wasn't basically honest, you know, I was, uh, I was still thinking the same as I was, and, uh, I, uh, I hadn't cleaned house, I hadn't, hadn't done anything, you know, and, uh, anyhow, I picked up another drink, and mean I found that me drinking changed, I found that I just couldn't get out of the house, and, uh, this surprised me, because, uh, even though basically I'm a loner, I've, uh, up to this stage, I had to at least see faces and hear voices, you know, and crawl into a pub or a club or like a mangy dog, but, uh, uh, I ended up, you know, drinking at home and, uh, you know, the wife had shot through and um, the local members rallied around and tried to get me back to AA, uh, relations from Sydney and AA, you know, that i found that I had, uh, they'd come up and uh, no way could I make a comeback. And I was just drinking myself out and um, uh, one of my many stages, you know, I started to correspond overseas many years ago as a loaner sponsor and then I reversed the roles and I started to, to write to these loaner sponsors to help myself, you know, but, uh uh, they used to send tapes of American speakers, you know, and I never ever played these damn things, and I'd stop writing to these bloody people there because they were too straight for me. You know, they, you know if I was going through self-pity or anything, they'd tell me to pull themselves together. And, uh, you know, so I put a few of these tapes on that I'd acquired over the years, you know, and these speakers talk for an hour, an hour and a half, and I'm not going to try and talk that long tonight, but they they talk about their childhood, they talk about their active alcoholism, and they talk about the recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And to me, they also talk a lot more about the emotional side of this disease. And listening to these speakers for an hour and a half, uh, I was going one better than that. I'd put a blank into the cassette and play my story into it. And that's why I'm a bit nervous of mics tonight. And then I was playing myself back at myself and adjudicating on what I said, you know. And uh, <laughs> I'm the own worst critic of the best of times, you know. But, uh, you know, I was listening to myself, poor little Brucey boy. You know, I cut my wrist before I got into Betterick Hospital. Or was it the third time in Lincoln Clinic before I graduated to break. And what year was it in that I got the Wisteria house, you know? <laughs> and this was a sort of the madness, you know? And over and over to myself again, I was playing myself, you know? And something Minogue told me many years ago at uh, at Edinburgh, you know, he suggested I get out in the scrub and find myself, and I'd had a lot of walkabouts, and uh, so I'd, I'd had a couple of so, so-called sober trips in AA all out the back blocks of Queensland when I was bombed out on Valium, and I'd stayed with lone members. And, uh, I made this pilgrimage to, uh, to make her come back to AA and, uh, I'd get to these one-horse towns and, uh, you know, I'd talk myself out of in. You know, I know she wouldn't be interested or he, you know, he'd be sick of me or, you know, and all the rest And so I was working my way back to Port Macquarie but, uh, through a chain of circumstances I'd come into a meeting a little over seven years ago now at Crazeness. and since that night I've been told in to no, AA I've changed, you know. And today I know this to be true because, uh, Along the way, in the last seven and a bit years, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has proved to me that I don't have to drink. You know, it's uh, released me of this obsession, compulsion and desire to drink. It hasn't made me a saint. Uh, you know, the only reason I don't throw lawnmowers around is I haven't got a lawnmower, you know. But, uh, you know, uh, I, it wasn't easy. I, uh, You know, uh, six months over the last time, and uh, again, I was, you know, keeping myself together. I uh, found it very hard to trust and talk at gut level. And I was basically doing it on my own, and, um, you know, a woman member at Warhope suggested I, I told her I was doing a bit of an AO trip, you know, and she said, uh, call in and see so-and-so in Canberra and uh, give her this message or give her this note or somebody." Like and I got down to Canberra, and I, uh, I'd met this woman once before in Canberra at a convention up at uh, Port Macquarie, and uh, I, I drove around the, the block for about three or four times, and I thought, well, eventually I thought, well, I'll go in, and if she asks me very nicely, uh, I'll stay for ten minutes for a cup of tea, and uh, I ended up staying four days and four nights, and uh, she'd become my sponsor, and uh, I only found out yesterday she died. But, uh, you know, uh, she was a great help to me, and, uh, I, you know, I'm not putting it up on a pedestal, but having got the help from this particular woman uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous six and a half years ago, I find in my case now, today, I can talk to certain people in AA at gut level, and this has been proved good for me, and I can only say how alcoholism, you know, affected me. And, uh, and how I've learned through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I tried to do the fifth step about 13 years ago in AA, and, uh, this particular night in question, I wasn't actually a member at the time, but I was, uh, at a meeting at Newtown, and, uh, everyone was talking about the, you know, get calm, this peace of mind, do the fifth step. And I speared this bloke after the meeting, and I said, I want to do the fifth step with you now. And he, said, he knocked me a deck. he said, no, he said, if I drink, he said, if you, if I drink tomorrow, he said, you might drink too. Now, whether he's right or wrong is beside the point, but he's still saved a day. But I can only say, as I say, how it affects me. And uh, having uh, got this sponsor in Canberra and, uh, and letting her see me as I really was, um, um, you know, I find now that I can talk to other people in AA, And it's been good for me because the sort of guy I am, if I can get myself into a spin, some bastard upsets me if a bit of the past comes up, if I start to doubt my story, or if I start to feel insecure in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I don't have to go running back to square one when I was 14. I just go back to the last time I seen a person that knows me and we kick on from there. I'm making progress in other areas. Uh, as I tried to say earlier, for a long time in AA, I was flat out sharing experiences. Tonight, I believe at times I can share a certain amount of strength and hope. But apart from sharing this, I'd like to share the time, and thanks for listening. Thank Faye. Faye?
10: Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Faye, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, and I've also been addicted to mood and mind-changing drugs. Well, I started off about the age of 29 with a little bottle with 50 Valium, you know. And I took these Valium for a few years in an alcoholic manner that I didn't realise until now. And then I become addicted to whiskey. And I was on whiskey and pills for many, many years. I knew what it was, you know, to pawn things in and out of pawn shops. I had good jobs. I had an army allotment. I had three kids, but I still was in and out of pawn shops. I had blackouts. I was dirty. I wasn't washed. I did everything, I suppose, that a wife and a mother shouldn't do. But all along the line, I found an excuse for Fay. You know, this one made me do this, this one made me do that. And I continued on this way for many, many years, more years than I care to remember. And then eventually I left my husband, or I guess he was glad I left him. And I ended up, I had nothing or nobody in the world, but three kids. And these kids washed me, fed me, kept me off a riverbank and kept me out of a jail. And one day I don't, by the, by way of the child welfare, I came in contact with Alcoholics Anonymous and I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and I fell in the door, drunk. You know, and I drank on the next day and then early the next morning I woke up and I looked at Faye. I looked at a dirty house and empty fridge and three kids and I picked up a phone and I called a doctor and for the first time in my life I admitted I was an alcoholic and I needed help desperately. And I committed myself to Morissette, and I came off Valium, and I came off whiskey. And today I realize that that little pill I thought was so innocent was far more dangerous to me than any bottle of whiskey. And I came out of Morissette, I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous in Tamworth. I forgot to tell you, I belong to the Tamworth group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And here, for the first time, or I'm saying for the first time in my life, I knew real love human kindness, and things I'd never, never really had in my life before. People didn't want to con me. They didn't want anything from me. They just wanted to see me get well. And this was a beautiful, beautiful experience for me. And I not only knew this love for me and myself, I knew it for my children. And it was beautiful. And I progressed along in Alcoholics Anonymous. The first job I got when I was sober was pumping petrol, you know, and I was going to put petrol into the wrong end of a Volkswagen one day. That's how mad I was. But I did it. I was so mad. Uh, And it was good money, and I had three kids. And then I took on a job as a cook in a private hospital, you know, and I put those two eldest kids through teacher's college, and the youngest one was coming along nice. And then I become something a man many, many years before had told me in Morrissette, and I met this man today, and it was beautiful. And this man spoon-fed me when I was in Morrissette, not only with food when I couldn't work, eat, he spoon-fed me with kindness and love, and I didn't realise just what this man did for me. And I have remembered him down the road of Alcoholics Anonymous for many, many days, and today, sitting in this hall, I looked up and I thought I saw a ghost, and I saw this man. And this beautiful man I knew when I looked at him wasn't at peace with himself. And I talked to him afterwards, and... It I was very, very sad. But it was beautiful to think I met this man again here this weekend. And I know I'm breaking into my story, but I was so happy to meet this person again. But I became involved with somebody. And this man had told me many years before, never react to feelings, react to facts. Alcoholics cannot handle emotions. And through this emotion, I became, I came into the contact of drugs again. I got onto a tablet called Largactrol after the death of this person and uh, I had an involuntary movement of the mouth and tongue that never stopped 24 hours a day for two years. And I stayed away from Alcoholics Anonymous. But when I did come back to Alcoholics Anonymous, I came back a different person. No more pride, no more arrogance. Nothing. Faye was humble. I was ready for you people this program, and for God to teach me. And you have done this, and it's a beautiful way of life. I'm very happy to be here this weekend to share with you. It's lovely. I love you all. You people, this program, and God have returned me, a mother, to three beautiful kids. I can't express my gratitude, but I'm very, very happy. Thank you, and God bless you. (laughs) Jeff. Jeff?
11: My name's Kevin, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm a member of the group that meets uh, in Sydney at the Mater Hospital on Sunday morning. Uh, gee, I don't know. I, like a lot of us, uh, at various stages at meetings, I sit there and think, if I'm called, I'll say this, and if I'm called, I'll say that. I have no, I have no wisdom. Ah. Uh, the only wisdom I have is is you people the only <clears throat> the only life I have today is you people you restored my sanity three and a half years ago you you restored my physical health and you restored my my spiritual health after a, a lifetime of drinking i, I was drunk when I was seven. That's the first time I remember being drunk. Like a lot of people, uh, I don't really remember when I picked up my first drink, but it was before I was seven. I drank uh, for the next 36 years uh, through uh, a primary education drinking, a secondary education drinking, uh, and further education drinking, and through a career that took me uh, seemingly successfully overseas for a number of years drinking, giving me, I thought, a lot of... Well, it was giving me a lot of confidence. Uh It's alcohol seemed to give me a lot of things. As uh, Bede from Randwick often says, uh, what a confidence trick alcohol is. And it, it was for me. It was such a rip-off. But as it turns out, it was a rip-off with a silver lining. Because today I have you. And you have me. Uh Which, I don't know, I, I guess that's pretty good because we're all one. Uh, I was at a meeting yesterday and unity was spoken about. Uh, I don't want to talk about unity within the fellowship now, but this this unity that I know we are one and as we all recover, I recover. And as I recover, we all recover. Uh, It was terrific to hear Pat tonight. Uh, I love to hear Pat speak because she speaks of the example of another alcoholic to her. And to me, Pat is a great example of of wisdom and courage and love. My sponsor, (coughs) I'm finding it very difficult, obviously, but my sponsor uh, gives me everything. Through the serenity that I have most of the time in my sobriety today, I am able to, to function as a, for most of the time, a, a reliable member of society. Uh, I found it personally very rewarding to hear uh, the Governor General speak of the, the other night of the contribution that we can make to society and that Alcoholics Anonymous does make to society. Uh, with my sort of calculating brain when he was talking about the figures, we come up with a figure of $3.5 million a year in counselling. Uh and that's uh that's not to be sneezed at, I think. Uh I just think it's terrific to be able to function again. I in the spiritual areas I, I find particularly as with everything else in the in the programme, but particularly in that area, I have to keep it very simple. I've I've re I've rediscovered uh a higher power that I was that I was brought up in and that I rejected. Uh, I found this power again, or this power has found me, and it's a remarkable experience for me. But if I overcomplicate it, as as I have done at various stages, it does not become a remarkable experience. That's all I think I'd like to say tonight, but just thank you.
1: Clive. Evening everybody, my name's Clive and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, hi, hi. Um, well, I think I'm lucky I can remember what I thought I'd talk about if I got called tonight while I was sitting there, um, so I'll talk about that. I was uh, last Christmas at my brother's place for the Christmas gathering and uh my father's dead, my, uh, one of my brothers is gone and my younger brother's a successful, uh, very successful rich businessman. Uh, divorcee with children and there were lots of lovely ladies about and gilded slippers thrown in corners and hand, you know, hams and too much food and too much booze and lots of dope being smoked and I thought, what am I doing here? And, uh, I received a letter from somebody I had something to do with in AA in London and, uh, It happened to be delivered on Christmas Day. It was a great letter. And I lied down on the floor as my mother was sitting on the floor and uh, put my head in the lap and read this letter. And I think it's... uh, I really don't know. It's got to be uh, at least 30 years since I did that. And for me, uh, that felt exceptionally good. Because uh, every lover I ever had always smelt like my mother, I know that. Uh, so there had to be something, you know, there was a smell and a feel and a touch and a homeliness and something that I hadn't experienced for so long. And uh I'm finding a similar thing here this weekend. I'm finding a similar thing in AA. Because uh for me, having paid my dues and arrived at AA and got sober overseas, uh, I sort of got it easy in a funny sort of way because I didn't have to walk round a corner and bump into Fred, who I ripped off last week, or Frida, who I knocked out last month, or whatever. Uh, I actually sort of got on a time and space machine and flew back into my past, and, and that was pretty freaky because suddenly I was met at a plane by my younger brother, who. I had very loving memories of and told myself that I was the person I loved most in the world. And through my new eyes, I, I had to actually look at this person and say, Well, gee, that's really my younger brother. That's the guy I grew up with. That's the guy I used to fight with, you know. This is the sort of the person that I knew and lived with until I was 17 years old, and I didn't know him. I'd never seen him before. And uh, I was born at Mascot, and I lived at Mascot, and I walked through Mascot and drove through Mascot, and I'd never been there before. Really, I hadn't. I could get in a car, and I could instinctively know which were one-way streets and which weren't. I had that much of a retentive memory, but basically then I had to look at Australia and Australians and uh, all sorts of things with my new eyes. And uh, I live with my younger brother, who, as I said, is a very successful businessman, in his flat with his friends, eating his food, driving his car on his time. And I tried desperately to educate this man into uh understanding me. And it didn't work, you see. All he could do is accept me. Because as far as he's concerned, I'm still a nut. Uh you know, I'm still a Martian. I'm still but he's still somebody who did all those insane freaky things which uh he just doesn't understand. You know, I think he wasn't even born young, um but I I think I was I think I've never been old, you know, in a funny sort of two-and-a-half-year-old way. And uh, we really are quite different. He is my family of the blood, but he's not my family of the heart, you see, because I could stand up here and talk and not even finish the sentence, and I'm pretty sure that 98% of the people in the room would understand what I'm talking about. And that's fantastic. That really is fantastic. It's that same feeling I got when I, when I lied down on the floor and put my head in my mother's lap. And uh, Pat talked about the search. Well, for me again, it was a search also. I turned over lots of rocks and lots of people and lots of countries and lots of situations. And uh, mine was a long search. And uh, I found what I was looking for in a way I was successful. All my all my failure, if you like, or all my programming for for not being successful, all my refusal to accept the responsibility of succeeding, got me here. And so, in a way, I was successful. In a way, I found what I was searching for. And if I did find what I was searching for, and I'm quite sure I did, you know, there's no reason for me to hold back. There's no me- reason for me to be afraid. But you know, I still suffer from this this ego disease. So. Uh, at times I'm reticent and at times I suffer, uh, a little bit less and a little bit less all the time. I am getting remarkably better. I'm, uh, even at times proud of myself. I think I like myself to a great degree, uh, much more than I did. I'm, I'm, I'm finding that the best thing that ever happened to me was accepting the responsibility of, of, of me. You know, I am responsible for how I feel and I am responsible for my health and stuff like that. Um mental as well as physical, you know. So therefore, uh, I have to sort of live up to that. And there's an old man, I, I'm could tell you um a log too, but I'd rather not. I'd rather share a couple of exciting things which happened to me and it was <coughs> a very old man who was talking about painting pictures actually, but it it goes for other things and he said um, responsibility without freedom is slavery. And slavery without, you know, uh, freedom without responsibility is anarchy. So, for me, I, I find that the answer to the, what I want is, I still think like, a, is balance. I find I still think totally in absolutes like a child, you know. If it's white and it doesn't look great white, then I'll think totally opposite, painted black. Uh, You know, what I need is is a balance and uh, to live in the minute and the now. And uh, for me, for me, it works that way. I think the thing that I was searching for all that time besides something spiritual was freedom. I really do. I think that's why I rejected authority and all sorts of things on all state. And I find that I am forced to acknowledge now that I I am given total freedom by AA. My problem is, is how to use it and how to pick it up and how to be responsible enough towards myself. You see, I'm my, my own most the I am the battleground. And I'm the one that buggers it up every single time because I'm the one that keeps expecting things of me. You know, I'm not a superstar, I'm just an alcoholic. And uh, I have to try and keep it simple, and that, that is is difficult. All I can do is say thank you very much uh, for releasing me of the prison of myself on a lot of fronts. And uh, I am very proud to be here. Thank you.
12: Um. Would you like to speak? Oh. Good evening, everybody. I'm Aileen, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, and I come from the Manning area. I say the Manning area because we've got such a lot of meetings in the Foster Town Curry groups uh, and Tari groups. Um, I need this meeting tonight. Oh, God, how I needed it. Um, I haven't been very happy at the convention, really, uh, but I am now. I've, I've got a great deal of serenity since I sat in and listened to other people's experiences. My story runs back to front. I was first taken to AA before I even had picked up a drink by a very dear friend who uh, came from the Newcastle area and who died just a few months after I got into AA through alcoholism. And uh, I, I had known quite a lot of the wonderful things that could happen to people, and I saw what happened to Frank and how wonderful he was in AA, and yet it didn't stop me from picking up a drink because I firmly believed that God had this plan in mind for me to know that, you know, that I should go through this hell, this private hell and come out a better person. And so I hung around AA, this happened in 1960, and I hung around AA for such a long time and uh, I was going because my husband that I was married to then, the father of my children, was a very bad drinker, a good man. A good worker, and, uh, he, but he liked his booze, and he suffered alcoholic blackouts. Eventually, he suffered a seizure, which took him. And then I was left entirely alone. And I say alone because from my earliest childhood, um, we, I came from a family of eight. Uh, we didn't have much money, but we didn't lack in love in our family. And, um, then, through the war years, the six years that he was away, I still lived with my family. And then I formed a family of my own with the help of my husband. And for those years, up to 34 years of marriage, I hadn't been alone. And when he died, I was completely at a loss. And I got around like a chook with its head cut off. And I had a good, comfortable home, but I still wasn't happy and I couldn't live with me. However, I... Um, Said, as I said, I hung around AA and uh, I thought I was going because I wanted to know how to live with this man who had this drinking problem. At the same time, I was drinking, but not at the same place as him because I used to get so embarrassed about him. These were the fun years for me and I was embarrassed because he used to make me feel so bad when I'd go drinking with him. However, uh, through all this time, um I still didn't see that it was me that needed AA I couldn't get him interested and uh he died as a, of a seizure suddenly one good friday night and uh I still hung around AA I still thought I was going because I had perhaps the son now that was that was drinking and becoming an alcoholic but finally it did get to me I hung around AA so long it's not funny. I beat the other man that said he hung round for five years. I went round for ten. And uh one night at a meeting at the hospital, something was said and the penny dropped. And I went down, I rang Tom. Could he pick me up? I was so sick I couldn't even ring the NRMA to come and fix the tyre the on me little mini. I, I had the phone in the house but I couldn't pick it up. I rang Tom and said, please, would you come and take me to the meeting? And he took me to the meeting. And I got up and I thought I was going to tell them all, you know. And they'd be all surprised that Aileen was an alcoholic, you know. But they'd been praying for me all these years. And <laughs> they knew. And uh, I know one night that there was an Elnon uh, lady there. And she came to me and she said... And I still didn't wake up. That's how befuddled it was. She said, uh, would you like to come to Elnon with us, Aileen? Or do you think you'd like to be here? And I said, no, this is my place here. It still didn't enter my head that I was the alcoholic. But I've had, uh, I haven't, since then I haven't, um, I've been lucky. I haven't had to pick up a drink. But I went on for about 18 months and uh, uh, then it set in. The honeymoon period was over and I started to get the electric fleas. And, you know, like me, the alcoholic, I had to do it, as I say, uh cold chook because we couldn't afford turkey and I did it all and I even put the smokes down but I've taken it up again in the last 12 months because I had a rather shattering experience about 12 months ago and I felt fortunately when I came out of the house I said to my brother-in-law who's standing there with a tinny in his hand oh god I'd love a drink and he, he went up the shed and got me a, a tin coke And uh, but my girlfriend handed me a smoke and uh there I am, still on them. But that'll go down one of these days. I think one thing at a time is enough for me. But I've had my ups and downs in AA, uh, sometimes depressed. But I'm getting a great deal of serenity. And uh, I know it has changed my life. And um, it is a wonderful way of life. And and I'm very, very grateful to be a member of AA. I hear people sometimes say that, um, you know, that... Uh, They were born alcoholics. It doesn't matter how you become an alcoholic. But I've heard this said. But I firmly believe alcohol causes alcoholism. And I firmly believe that I had all the tendencies prior to that. Because I didn't drink until I was 40. I was brought up in a Salvation Army uh, life at home and taken to Sunday school. And at the time that I did eventually pick up a drink, I was teaching Sunday school and taking my children off to Sunday school and being a good mother and in defiance I thought that God was being very cruel to me and in rebellion I I did go out and pick up a drink and so I had some fun years I must admit that but the disease started to take hold of me and my life became hell and I know that after my husband died my mother the dear little Salvation Army lady that I loved so much and the young man spoke about the fragrance of his mother. My mother is a little fragrant woman too. And we all love the smell of our mothers. And, um, I know she said to me after my husband's death, but it could have been the cause of Jim's death. And you know, I think that contributed to my, uh, not, I didn't pick up a drink, but to my, re- my regression in AA. Uh, for about eight months I didn't go, I wanted to commit suicide. I, I thought of all these terrible things. I didn't realise. It took me a long time to, to come to the point where people were saying that I wasn't guilty. And finally it came home to me that I wasn't guilty. I didn't I wasn't responsible for what my husband did. And um and I shed that guilt. It was only through the, the teachings from AA, the good advice I got from new dear people, that cleared myself of this terrible Thing I had, uh, I had this nice home, as I said, and I used to throw things around the place a night time when I came home, so, so that I could pick them up next morning and make myself do some work. Uh, I, I was in a terrible state mentally. Physically, it didn't do much to me. I used to say I didn't go to hospital. Uh, I didn't wasn't put into a hospital, and I did. I went in with a, you know, nervous breakdown. Uh, nobody said to me, you know, do you think you ought to get on the program? Uh, but eventually, you know, it came to me and I did. And I've, I've never been, uh, my life since then in, this happened in 1977. And, um, things changed for me. Uh, I was down in Sydney doing geographical. And, uh, the man I was involved with was a drinker too. But his boys gave me the most trouble. And I realised that I was getting out of the frying pan into the fire. I would come home to my own home, and I would be a mother and a grandmother, because I had almost lost my children through this. And I came home, and I tried to go back to the club, just to play carpet bowls. Somehow or other, the desire for drink had left me before I realized I was just sick of drinking. You know, I really was. I was sick of drinking. And I used to go back and I'd try to play carpet bowls and try to drink a couple of squashes and I I just couldn't enjoy it. So I came home. I remember coming home before I called Tom and I said to myself, you know, I'll stay in this house and that's just what I'll do. I'll just stay in this house. I'll exist without anybody. But I couldn't make it without AA because I knew, I knew that there was a place that I could get peace. And I too was brought up with the god of fear and finally i came to to realize it was a god of love however you know with all these wonderful things and i i went on a tour early in in that year and i met a man who wanted to keep traveling around australia and he asked me to marry him and by the end of that year we were married and we've done some wonderful trips i'm very grateful to him i complain about him sometimes I wonder to myself whether I've done the wrong thing or the right thing. But um he doesn't ask me and doesn't put any restrictions on me. And I can go to as many meetings as I like. He keeps the car on the road for me. All I do is put the petrol in it. I don't even put water or air in the tyres or anything like that. But he keeps it on the road for me. And I've got a lot to be grateful for this way, you know. He brought me up to, to um, Armadale this weekend. And he's filling in his time... Revisiting old people and old friends of his, and getting his own meals and that sort of thing, while I'm enjoying the company of you beautiful people. I've seen two lots of people today that, uh, in, in the last couple of days that I've met before, and uh, realised what a wonderful love and 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 fellowship there is, and how grateful I am to God that He's given me, and AA has given me this second chance of this wonderful life that I have now. I have my children who rely on me as a babysitter occasionally, something they wouldn't trust me with when I was drinking. And this is something, it's so wonderful. I had a birthday a couple of weeks ago when I turned 60 and I had a dinner party up there at their place and it was a wonderful time. My son still has a few drinks, but prior to this Christmas 12 months, he uh, came home very, very drunk and started to pick on me. And I was ready to go to a meeting in Wingham. And I know that, you know, just through the the very fact that I had learned to hang on to that little bit of serenity, I walked to the door and said, don't worry, Jeff, I won't be coming. You won't ever insult me in your house again because I won't be coming back. And of course, he wanted to put his arm around me and kiss me. I shrugged him off. I walked out the door with all the pride and dignity I could muster. Since soon as I got in my car to drive down to the meeting, I dissolved into tears and fell on the boys' shoulders when I got there. But I knew that they understood me. And uh, since then, my son came down for Christmas that day, a uh, few, few weeks after, and there hasn't been a word spoken between either of us. But I know that my sobriety and my life in AA has spoiled his drinking just a little. That one day, through the example that perhaps I have shown, of the change in me, that he may say, well, mum's got something. And I pray every day and every night for this, because I've only got one son and one daughter, and I love them very much. And uh, But I'm trusted with their wonderful children, and I'm very, very grateful, as I've said before. And uh, my heart's very full, because as I said, I really needed this meeting tonight. Things hadn't been going. I think I was just overtired. I think, you know, we, we don't realise how sick we are but I realise now that, that this has been a wonderful meeting and I don't care how long it goes on but I'm very, very grateful tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs> Filling
2: a bill.
13: Thanks Trevor. Good night everyone. I'm Bill and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bill. Thank you. Uh, I didn't expect this tonight. <laughs> I've had a couple of goes this weekend and uh, I've enjoyed the meeting tonight very much. But me, alcoholic. I drank very early and uh, right from my very first drink. I had no control whatsoever. I didn't know it then. I thought my behaviour was the same as anyone else's. I didn't know the, 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 uh, that I was any different to anybody else. But, uh, I now know, on looking back, that I had no control. The only control that I had in my early drinking was the amount of money I had in my pocket. So I can't take any credit for that. And a very quickly drink took over and directed me where I went, how I behaved and what I did and what have you. And uh, I didn't particularly like what was happening, but I was unable to do anything about it. And I would never have said that right there and then. If anybody had have asked me, could I stop or could I do this, I'd have said, if I wanted to, but I don't want to. Uh, However, as time went on, I was to uh, walk off the family property, uh and I don't know why, but this is the insanity of this sickness, I believe. The rows that I was causing in my, my parents' home with my brothers and sisters, uh, and I felt a tremendous guilt about this because I knew it was me that was causing these upheavals in the family circle, and I was unable to do anything about it. So I decided I would leave home, and I did this on many occasions. And my father, uh, in his sincerity to try and help me, would bring me back into the family circle and uh, take up my position on the property again. And, but there was always one condition that I didn't drink, or excessively, And that was impossible. I may do it for a little while, but invariably I would... Uh, pick up the drink again and I would go to town with a load of fruit perhaps on Monday morning and turn up on Friday and this is the thought of behaviour and I was wondering why the the old man was getting a bit niggly on me Uh, at the age of 16 now my youngest brother came home from college once and I had a cattle dog and he said to me on this particular occasion you know nugget He said, if ever you come home sober, that dog would bite you because he wouldn't know you. And that would be pretty right too because on every occasion I went to town, I never ever intended to get drunk. I only ever went in to have a couple. I never wanted to get drunk. I just wanted that feeling, that contentment and that comfortable feeling that I had right from my very first drink but I was never able to maintain that level. I always went that bit further. And I never ever remember having enough to say that, right, I'll stop now. I'm full enough. I'll go home and go to bed. The only time I had enough was when the pubs closed, or I couldn't get any more, or no I flaked out. So this was the pattern of my life for a good number of years. And we hear a lot about the geographicals in AA, and I went on the all. Every place I was going to go to, every place I went to, it was going to be different. And it was. It was worse. And uh, the trouble I was getting into with the police, with the... And the funny thing, I was only thinking the, this afternoon, somebody mentioned about the trouble they had with magistrates. And uh, I always got into trouble with them uh, too, because uh I was a pretty arrogant sort of a fellow, and uh I remember once the magistrate in the orange court and that's the town i come from uh uh was uh he knew my family and he was dressing me down very severely to, He was telling me to pull my socks up, and that my family uh you know that uh I was making a holy show shower them and what have you. And I let him have his little spiel, and when he'd finished, I said, you can drop dead, you rotten mongrel.
7: <laughs>
13: and it cost me another th- three quid.
7: <laughs>
13: now, the fine for drunk in those days was five bob. Now, three quid was a hefty fine. And I always wanted that last saver. And th- th- this was me as an alky. Couldn't keep my big mouth shut, and I've got a job to do today, too, I might <laughs> he know what he's let himself in for. <laughs> he's given me the mic. but uh through this excessive drinking, I was to go a lot of places that I didn't want to go, and I did a lot of things that I didn't want to do, and as I know it now, it was all against my will, all against my better judgment and uh although I lost all this uh material stuff in the beginning of or, or early in my drinking uh, and my position in the family and what have you and the love and uh, uh, the family the brothers and sisters and parents and what have you the thing that started to go was my dignity the self-respect and that was bad but then after many years of trouble and uh, what have you uh, I lost hope And that was when the real trouble started. I just didn't give a damn anymore. I didn't care. I accepted the fact that I was a drunk and that's the way I was going to die a drunk. And I was terrified of of that fact that I was going to die somewhere unknown, unwanted, unloved, in the gutter. And this was going to be my existence. And I was to go on like this for quite a while. I did try on many occasions to to stop drinking. I took pledges and uh, I took a prohibition order out against myself and all these sorts of things and nothing to work. Unfortunately for me, I was introduced to AA. And uh, I went very well in the city for, for a period of 12 months and then I went back to the bush. And there wasn't any AA there. And I cut myself off from the lifeline. And I believed, and I really believed this at the time, that I would never, ever drink again. I'd had enough. And I thought, armed with the knowledge that I A had, I had, I had given me, that I'd be able to never pick up another drink. But I did. Because all I'd succeeded in doing, apparently, as I look back on it now, was at... Uh, Attacked the physical side of my sickness. I didn't worry about the other two sides. And I knew and I believed what I'd heard in AA that I suffered with this fold sickness. And anyhow I drank again. and uh, I was to know a devastation and a remorse and despair in that period of drinking. I never ever want to forget that either because if I do I may pick up another drink. I want to remember all that because that's my safeguard about picking up that first drink, And I really believed that AA hadn't worked for me. It never entered my head that I hadn't worked for AA. I believed, as I'd heard in AA, read out this chapter 5, where there were people incapable of being honest with themselves. And I was such a dishonest beggar that I thought this was me, because I had never been honest in my life long before ever I picked up the first drink, I wasn't honest. I didn't become dishonest because I drank. I was dishonest before I drank. And I believe today, and I really believe this too, that my life didn't become unmanageable because I drank. My life was unmanageable and that's why I drank. That's my belief. And I believe that uh, when I threw the towel in. And there's people here in the hall that have heard my story before. But my last drink was at Lake Canoblis at Orange. And uh, I tried to do away with myself. I'd heard about the wet brain. Uh, and I, I, I really thought that either I'd drink myself into a wet brain or I'll kill myself. And I'd had this tin of methylated spirits and I drank it. As much as I could, but I don't know how much I drank, and that doesn't matter. But that was the 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 method in my madness, was either to have the wet brain and I wouldn't care, or I was going to kill myself, and either way it didn't matter. But neither of those happened. The wet brain part nearly did, I think, but not quite. I had enough uh, sanity left to know what I had to do, that I had to get back to A.A., and at this particular stage, I didn't believe, think I believed in God. I didn't have any faith in God, at any rate. But I did ask for help, and I I, 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 I never want to forget this either. And I did for a long time after I became sober. I asked this God that I didn't believe in, and this is the prayer, and I can remember it today, that I, uh, I added, I'd please God help me. I don't care what it is that I've got to do, but I'll do it. Take my arms and my legs, and I don't care, but I've got to stop drinking to live. And I knew it. And I haven't had a drink from that day to this. And it wasn't such a long while after that that I forgot about that. You know, and uh, I used to buck on that second step. The insanity, I wouldn't have it. And, 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 one day after a meeting at, at, at Burwood, or one night at least, I'd gotten up and I said about this, uh, and I was sober approximately three years at this period. And, uh, I said, I can't wear this spiritual side and I can't wear the God angle, you know. And I was just putting on a show as I know it now. And after the meeting was over, a little fellow came over to me. He said, come here, grumble guts. <laughs> he said, I've heard your story. He said, and I've heard you talk up and talk about that last week you had at Lake Canobis. He said, and you've got God in your hip, cock, and pocket. And he said, and you're too bloody stupid to see it. And he was dead set right. And I needed that too. And uh, my approach to AA as it's been set up here tonight was all wrong. I did everything back to front. But I had to do it that way to prove that the program was right and I don't believe and I really tr- and truly don't as I said here the other morning I don't believe the program is hard but overcoming bull to do the program is hard there's nothing in that program that's hard and, uh, because I wouldn't be sober here tonight if it was and I really believe that too I've been very very fortunate since I came to AA God And the fellowship and the friends I've met in AA have been very, very kind to me. In the beginning, they were very tolerant. They put up with my shocking attitude, my arrogance, my goodness. And I don't know how they did. They must have been nearly saints, those early members of AA, to put up with me. But they did, thank God. And I'm here tonight and uh, I owe it all to AA and the God that I accept. I still don't understand God. But he understands me, and he must have a pretty good sense of humour. You know, he puts up with me. And uh, he must be a very tolerant God, too. But thank you for sharing and hearing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Maureen, would you like to speak? Is there any lady members here like to speak? Irena?
14: No. Good evening, my name's Aruna, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. And I'm a member of the Newcastle City Group and uh, I'm saved today. Th- Can you hear me down the back? I'm saved today through the grace of God and the fellowship of AA and for that I am very grateful. Um, I've already spoken at this convention, um, at the sponsorship workshop, so I won't say too much. Um... I've been sober a little over two years, and uh, uh, last year we went to the Adelaide Convention, and Adam was two weeks old, and this year is one year and two weeks old, and uh, but this year also, my mum and my dad have come along, and that's tremendous for me. Uh, mum's been sober a little over a year, and uh, the blessings that I have received in this fellowship. Um, are absolutely wonderful. Um, and I know that if I keep coming here where it's all at, God will see me and you three together. Thanks. Should I ask the gentleman
2: in the third seat
15: here? Could you? Would you like Good night all. My name is Rock and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm very grateful to be uh, at this convention. I'm having a terrific time, to be quite honest with you. I think it's uh, marvellous the uh, planning that's going into it. I come from Melbourne. I'm from a group in Melbourne, the Marambina group. Meet Monday night. I was secretary at uh, Melbourne Tuesday night for a farewell, and I also took on the Murrumbina, but I give the Murrumbina one away. And uh, I think I got a little lot more out of so sort because of, it had fallen right down. We're trying to build it up again. And, uh, we just case along very good now, and, uh, I think it's a big thing, this, uh, getting involved in IA. Seems to be the secret, because, uh, I know you don't notice yourself changing, but I know, uh, after I was made secretary at, uh, Melbourne, I, uh, I wouldn't, those people say to me after how I sort of changed, you know, you get a, a different outlook on life, because you're helping Well, than you're not just, uh, Taking, you giving too, and that's the main thing. That's what AA is all about, apparently. I don't uh, understand the program fully. It's, uh, I believe in a higher power. I choose to call in God. I know very well he's got me through a lot of tight spots. Like I started drinking at the age of 15 up in uh, Echuca. It's a country town up in the Murray there. So you've probably known there's uh, 11 pubs in Echuca, I think it was, and the two across the river. Well, uh, I didn't, uh, I wasn't a dancer. My sister used to go dance, but I preferred to go to the pub. I could still remember, uh, the name of the bloke that I started off drinking with. Tom Buckley. It's, uh, one of those towns where there's, uh, different families. Well, there was the Buckleys and the Martins and, uh, the Victories. Like the Martins and the Corps you hear about in America, I suppose. Well, uh, I remember Tom Buckley, uh, went over to the, uh, the Palace Hotel, it was. It was a Richmond pub. It was uh, it's 31 years ago, I think now. And, uh, he said, uh, I was drinking lemonade. He said, I have a drop of beer in it, well, uh, which I did. Well, by the end of the day, it had uh, changed. I was just having uh, straight beer. I couldn't stand the lemonade in it. I remember, uh, we lived across the river at that time. My father cleared out on us when, we was, when I was a little kid and my mother Took us up to a cheek where her family lived. And uh, I remember they were standing out in the front van of my sister and mother and I uh, took me home in a taxi and I got out of the taxi and I thought I'd better show them 'em I'm all right, you know, so uh, I ran across, went to vault the, the gate, but I got me foot hooked in the top wire and down I went. Well but uh, fast as over and after that it was uh I used to get drunk regularly. I used to get horribly sick from it. I remember my sister, she was a couple of years older than me and uh, I go and I'd spare my guts out. Just say, Why don't you give it up, Ralph? You can't drink. I'd say, I'll beat it. I kept drinking till I could beat it. But here it's uh well, it's a progressive disease and uh it beats you in the end, like uh the chap that steered me towards alcoholics anonymous, so I remember he said to me he was a big rough Irishman. He said to me, You gotta give up, Ralph, he said you've got to surrender. Surrender to win. I realise now that's what you gotta do, because you can't beat this booze. If you keep going, you must go down. Yeah. I think a higher power steered me, uh, I got, uh, I lost my licence once for six months after my wife had left me. I started off getting around the old traps again. I got it back, and, uh, I'd sworn off it a bit, but then it wasn't long and I was back in the old routine again. I'd been round the uh start off at McNamara's in Corfield and uh the mate left his car because he didn't want to get he'd got picked up a couple of times before for drunk driving, so uh I saw you leave your car home, we'll go in mine. Okay, I was alright, there's no worries, because I was drinking light ale for one thing. So uh, but that's no different, not if you're uh by midnight that night I think it was, I'd uh left his places and killed only had to go straight up the road I always go but well, I got lost somehow or another and uh, a couple of ladies in blue got onto me and uh, took me back to Pran put the breath lies on me and I was going again and this time I lost your lies for two years and I went to court but uh, I think it was a shame and disgrace to getting picked up by a couple of uh, women I suppose might have had something to do with it, but uh, it was my last drink that was uh, I remember the date the uh, July the 24th, 1979. I went to my first A meeting the following Wednesday at St. Vincent's. I'd been to see a union solicitor on the Tuesday night. We got free legal advice at the union office. And uh, it was Peter Redlick, and he said to me, he so, said, does uh, drink a problem with your Ralph.' I'd shade him a letter from the ex-wife solicitor. If I continued to take the children to the hotel, I'd be refused access. Also told him about the second... Time had been picked up for drunk driving. I said, no, it's no problem, Peter. If I can't uh, buy it, I brew me own, which I was. I had a good home brew recipe. I got off a chap at work. By this time, I'd made quite a few uh, gallons of the stuff. I'd also found out if you put more sugar in the stuff, well, it uh, boosts up the content. You only needed a uh, few beers of my home brew, and you was uh, gone. Uh, cause I had to make doing that cause, uh, I was married at, uh, and had a couple of children by this time, of course, before my wife left naturally, and, uh, she used to even help me brew it. She'd be cooking up in the kitchen, I'd be boiling the hops up out in the wash washhouse, had another stay out there. But so I'd moved into the house, so, uh, uh, I'd be leaving, uh, I didn't believe, I didn't, uh, I was a bit of a workaholic too, to a certain extent, cause, uh, I know when I got married, uh, most people send their wives out to work. I didn't believe in that. It was, uh, probably it was ego too, I guess. No, you don't do it. I do it all. So, uh, even though I was on strike, I'd travel all the way to Cranman working on farms and that, but, uh, it was a bit of a battle and things get you down. But I always, uh, didn't matter how hot it was or that, I'd always get stuck into the work and, I uh, always knew I could have a few beers after work. i looked look forward to that. In fact, my wife, by that way, she'd, uh, knew very well that she'd have to have a bottle, cold bottle for me when I got home from work, otherwise I'd never hit or anything, but, uh, she just knew that it'd fix me up. But I never realised there was anything wrong with my drinking. Because, uh, even I went to Sydney, one stage through, I know, I had my 21st in Sydney. I remember my 21st birthday, party I had on the side of the railway line in Lidcombe. We got the uh, train driver drunk, they were shunting down below and we got them all full. I don't know whether they got the sack or not, but uh, I know I was horribly sick the next day and uh, nobody had any beer, but somebody had a bottle of uh, sweet cherry. So uh, that's a price because it was alcohol to me, so I can't say I've never drank clonk because uh, I'm quite sure if, uh, if I was put to the test I'd have drank too, I suppose, because... I never did, I don't think. I lots of people said my home brew was worse than metho, but uh, that was just their opinion. But I remember the night my wife walked out, I met, uh, she was going to a party, some friends of hers around the corner, and I stayed home uh, babysitting, because they weren't my friends. the so fun thing, they didn't like my home brew. So uh, they didn't appreciate good beer, so they weren't friends of mine, so... Uh, I said, don't hey, mind the kids, and a bit of an argument started with a girlfriend was there. I had a, a daughter there, we were just taking her off the dummy sort of thing. She was crying, and uh, Karen put a, the dummy in back in Suzanne's mouth, and I took her head, she put it back in, I said, she has not have a dummy, and uh, she went and rang me wife up, and the third time my wife came home and uh, got the kids and went back to mummy. So, uh, that was it. Uh, the divorce went through, and she moved down Geelong, so that made it uh pretty awkward for me, but then once again, that's something uh my alcoholic thinking I think because i'd uh i started going. uh my wife had been baptized at Church of Christ in Oakley, and uh I saw so she went off so going down to church myself. I remember when uh picture drive me car down there, and the car got pinched one Sunday night from outside the church. Well, my sister came over to take me shopping that Thursday, and I was in Oakley, and uh, I stuck one of my wife's girlfriends. We're still married at this time. And uh, Pat said, your car get pinched off. I said, yeah, just as well. I said, I'll fix that so-and-so up. She said, what do you mean? I said, I was going up to the old man's to get the gun out of blown her bloody head off. And uh, just stupid talk, you know. But uh, next thing I know, that was when my wife took off down to Geelong, So that made it a bit more difficult for me because I'd had access granted to me by the court for my children, which I had a... John was five and Suzanne was seven at that time. They're still living down Geelong. But, uh... i say I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous the second time, and, uh... I was around 18 months, I think, and I happened to, uh... I broke my ankle at work. I was on to workers' compensation. And, uh... I was going to the gallery and a meeting at uh, Flinders Street and a meeting at night. I was going to three meetings a day, and uh, for some reason, I don't know why, it was just I'd uh, fill in time, I guess. But uh, I loved the meetings, but by this time I got to like alcohol, it's anonymous. You now I'd been to uh, three meetings on Tuesday and uh, got home from my meeting at Malvern. Well, I say my meeting, the meeting where I was secretary. And the phone was ringing at, uh, with my sister. And, uh, I just had my leg out of the plaster. She said, uh, Are you comfortable? I said, oh, yeah, I'm relaxed. I had my feet up, foot up, resting it. And, uh, she said, oh, I had a, been trying to get on you all day. She said, uh, John's been in the intensive care ward in Geelong Hospital. He got knocked off his bike on his way to school that morning. Well, uh, he was only ten at the time. And, uh, you know, I was tore straight down to, uh, Geelong that night I didn't have any money, I had no petrol in the car I still had my car, no lice but still had my car so I went and knocked up the old chap next door and uh, got some money off him and uh, tore off down Geelong about 2 o'clock in the morning I took a chance on the coppers but uh, I went down there and I was on compa and I spent 3 months down there with my son and uh, all the time it was uh, shocking, I you know, was in a unconscious all that time I had a, a copy of the Srendi prayer that I'd photosat at work and I put it up on the, uh, the bed there and that's all that kept me going all that time because it was a shocking period, you know, because he's a, he's a terrific little, he is a terrific little kid. I can't say it was because he is still in that, uh, still in a coma. The doctors say he won't get out of it. I, uh, still got my faith in God that he will recover from it. But, uh, he can't talk or, walk And, uh, for that to happen to a little boy, well, it's, uh, perhaps I feel a bit of guilt about it too, cause he, uh, perhaps I was the cause of him tearing down Geelong and, uh, always, you know, but I've just got to accept the fact that, uh, it's happened to him and, uh, it's, uh, very difficult now because my uh, daughter, she's three years younger than John. I've got a letter from, I get letters from her regularly and, uh, I ring him up every week, of course, but, uh, I've just got to learn to accept this thing that, uh, perhaps my son will say like it, but, uh, I also joined that Headway group now, because that's, uh, a self-help group for brain damaged victims, and that's doing me a lot of good. Also, I'm, uh, I'm a great believer in this spiritual, uh, business, because I do believe in God, and I go to this, um, Pentecostal Church in Richmond Thursday nights now and I pray for my son all the time. I joined a prayer group there and they pray at 10 o'clock every night and, uh, and it does me good. And, uh, but I still stick close to Alcoholics Anonymous. i to go to meetings every night of the week now if I can. And, uh, I think this convention here is incredible and, uh, I'm starting, I think I'll start playing towards, uh, Next year, up at Surface Paradise's or up Queensland Way, anyway. And uh, I know we don't project, but uh, we can plan. You've got to plan these things. I know I've been looking forward to this weekend for quite a while now, and uh, it's turned out even better than I expected. I thank you all very much for sharing and caring. Thanks,
2: yeah. Doctor. <laughs> Bill from Glen Innes.
16: night, everybody. My name's Bill, and I'm an alcoholic hi, I'm, hi, I'm from the Glen In this group, and I know Piliger Bill put me in for this, and i'm'll deal with him later but uh I've been but I didn't mind standing up really because I've uh there's no doubt about alcoholics. we do everything backwards i've uh I think we're supposed to be getting rid of our tails humans, but i'm I think I'm growing one. And, uh, it gets a bit painful, but I, uh, I've noticed the couple of days I've been here at this convention that there's a lot of people have been grateful about being able to stand up sober and and clean, and it reminds me, I was sitting there, and it reminded me of a, I used to get on the grog for weeks on end, you know, I'd, uh, six weeks, I can remember one session lasting six weeks, mate and I got on it, and I can remember eating baked beans or something once, I think, in that time, but uh after a certain time on these long sessions, I used to get a I still don't understand it, but I'd uh I'd start to get an idea that I that I smelt something terrible, you know, and uh, have uh, no doubt too sometimes. I suppose the blood was a bit foxy. You know, when you, I had an aversion to water, both internal and and external. But, uh, this was a terrible thing. I'd, I'd be there and I'd go out every, oh, 10 minutes some days and I'd have a cold shower. Um, then another one, you know, a bit later on. I always had this, this idea of how many I had I still had this smell about me. It used to embarrass me something terrible. But uh when I came to AA I sort of started to think positive and I know that nowadays when I when I think I stink, you know, I really stink and uh so that's one good thing it's done to me. But uh I was brought up in a Catholic school and uh I too was taught that uh to fear God, and, but I'm a bit different, I still fear Him. I know that uh, when I do something wrong, if I'm doing the wrong thing, but when I, I'm doing the right thing, like being here tonight, well, He's with me and He's a mate. And, uh, and uh, just to see some of the old friends, like Pilliger and the uh, chap here tonight that I've known for many years, as, uh, as proof of, uh, of that, that He's here. And, uh, old chap I was sitting with, he's gone now, I can call him an old chap, but uh I haven't seen him for a long time, and many years ago he and I used to uh, be prospectors on the same creek we were after sapphires, and uh it was great to sit there with him tonight. I can remember on one occasion, being sapphire miners, of course we were doing quite well, we used to live on one very small tin of baked beans each a day, and... uh a loaf of bread when we can get it, and we we're really doing it hard, but I remember one day I had to go up the creek, and, uh, there was a hut up there where another bloke was, and he always doing pretty good, but he had a mate in a hotel in Glen Innes, and, uh, he used to bring him out cold fowls. He was a cook, this bloke, and, uh, always on the grog, and he'd bring, um, these cold chooks out, and, uh, uh, so when I went to him, he said, look, could you use a... If I give you four or five of these fowls, he said, do you think you could eat them? He said, he's given me too many, they're to going rotten. So I grabbed them, of course, and, and flew up to the old mate. It's a funny thing, we'd been in AA, both of us, for many years when this happened. So it wasn't grog, but it just that we weren't doing too good. But uh, I reckon you shouldn't uh, feed... You know, poultry bones to, to anything they might stick in their neck. But, uh, I remember old George, he cleaned two of these up without even filleting them, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but it's wonderful to be, that's the thing with me. I'm terrible grateful to be, uh, here and sober tonight. And I, I thank God and AA that I am. And, uh, thanks very much.